Welcome to part two. We're gonna start already in progress and jump right in with the foot. Nope, nope, don't talk about that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. All right. For our next section, I think we're coming to some some FUD lore. We call this section true shit or bullshit. <laughs> so we'll have some, just a, a few quick little FUD lores here that you can just give a quick answer of either true or, or bullshit. And we'll start off with the, the three easy ones that everyone knows. So I'll take the take the first three. So this one is the, the classic, the, the enemy would wait and listen for the Imwen Garand ping to know that the soldier was empty and then charge him while he was reloading. True shit or bullshit? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> this hurts. We all know the answer to this one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely true. They did that. That happened. Yeah. Ooh, you hear me? Yeah, because in Sea and Arsenal world, you have to understand, if someone says that it happened 30 years later to their grandson while they're BSing around, it's a guaranteed fact because this is what I'm up against in World War One. Everybody does this to me. <laughs> but, so yeah, uh, I'm gonna do it back to everybody else. Yeah, it has to be absolutely true. Eat it, all of you, because if, if it ever <laughs> even maybe happened once or is possible to happen, that makes it true. Because that's what everybody says to me all the time. Ooh, yeah. And also, they would take the empty uh, M blocks and bang them together to trick the enemy into ch- charging. Yeah, also true. It has to be true <laughs> because uh, we thought of it, so that's true now. Brilliant. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> you would not uh, believe you would not believe the number of times I've had people bend over backwards to prove something to me in the, in the most minor possible way. Like, did you know that the uh, the Winchester eighteen eighty seven lever shotgun actually served in World War One? Because because one one bozo brought one over. Uh, they, they, they they I mean it did. There's literally an account of somebody finding one in a pawn shop. So now, forever, if somebody goes, hey, did the Winchester lever action ever serve in World War One?" I? I have to go, uh, yes. Exactly one, but now I, for some reason, have to specify this every time. Maybe. So yeah, I guess maybe somebody heard the ping and charged, maybe. So now you have to say it's true forever, because maybe it did maybe happen. I don't know. Technically, yes. But, yeah. you know, and it's so ironic, because most people take your videos and act like assholes to other people to prove them wrong. They just watch one of your videos. Now they're a full expert. Who hurt you? <laughs> and so they're always yelling. Well, Thias said this, and Thias said, "You do have to watch what you say because people." Where, throw, where is throw this? Around. I really tag me in this the next time it happens because I never get to see this. I just get to pe- I, see people calling me an idiot. I'm definitely gonna. I'll send it to you in Reddit when it happens. I mean, uh, in Discord. We'll, we'll see on Reddit. I'll send it in Reddit, but I'll send it to you in Discord. Oh, you're on. That's where it went wrong. Yeah, that's where we're finding all the all the all the good dumb stuff. Right. Well, you're he's finding a lot of people trying to prove him wrong and buy his guns. You know, he's finding a lot of bad people too. <laughs> trying to buy my guns <laughs> from your list. I get a lot of people try to sell me guns for more than market, which is funny too. <laughs> As if you don't know what they go for. Yeah. Right. I mean, I do actually. I don't until I look them up. That's the hard. Yeah, but you have to know. And I'm going. I I haven't tried to buy one of those, so I literally don't know. I mean, I don't just go around carrying around. You know, I can think of probably a thousand guns if I sat here and started listing them. I definitely don't know the prices for all of them. That's not a thing. Yeah. All right. In a similar vein for World War One or Two, the Japanese soldiers would toss away the dust covers from their Type 38 or Type 99 rifles because they were loud and clanky and they wanted to sneak around the battlefield. 
yeah no thank you there's actually if you read oh god what was it there's a comic crap i can't remember the name of it there's a there's a manga that was written by a guy that was serving in the japanese army it's a big three volume set now oh it's gonna kill me that i can't remember the name of that manga anyway um it, he talks about you know being drafted in the japanese army and what it was like and he hated it you know he was not a um jingoist kind of guy so he his whole thing is just talking about being an average dude dragged along by all this and constantly being yelled at for being lazy and blah 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 and i mean he has a whole little thing about getting beaten for having a spot of rust on his rifle when they were on a boat in salt water you know ah. and i'm going yeah i'm sure they totally let you throw those dust covers away that sounds right oh yeah throw away the emperor's property good luck with that like when they say they would let them carve their names into the stocks yeah no thank you they were that's a, that's another thing is you don't see personalization of japanese arms you see it in uh actually personalization of firearms is extremely rare to be allowed um because that was government property like great war everybody's like oh yeah he carved his name and you're going no they were they were real real tight on the guns in the great war especially but then there's other regions like what boer war yeah they were carving their names on stuff they owned it personally and then um there's some evidence that the Italians by World War II were decorating their rifles with uh, the casings. So you'll you'll often see Carcanos with like circles all over them. Yeah. And, I've seen suppose, that. Suppo- and it lines up with the case mounts of 6.5 Carcanos. So supposedly they were like bored and taking their rounds and sort of like when they'd fire them, they'd take the hot casing and just sort of stick it into the wood to make patterns. Okay, I have a Greek monlicker with a bunch of circle all over the stock. I was wondering about that. Yeah, so my question is, was it the Italians or the Greeks? Because that's that was my secondary question. Because now that you said Greek monlicker, that hits it on the nose. Because I, hmm. I kind of doubt it was the Italians because they that was their you know state property. But the Greeks who ended up with a bunch of their stuff might have done it. Hmm. I don't know. I haven't dug further into it, and I certainly haven't seen photo evidence. But it, it's a known thing because it turns up on a number of Carcanos. I have one that's that way. So if somebody did it that had a significant number of Carcanos. The question is, when did they do it, and who were they? And then a lot of Serbian guns, I believe, end up marked later on. Yeah, like a lot of the Balkan stuff. Yeah, which again would go to the Greeks, I guess, doing it. I don't know. It's a curious thing. So there are guns that end up getting marked on occasion, but it's usually very specific regions for very specific reasons. All right, and our last of the last of the easy ones is low number nineteen oh three U.S. nineteen oh three rifles should never be fired. Regardless if you reload and can make lighter loads. That gun hits on a problem. <laughs> which is the problem of percentages and people's understanding of risk. <laughs> oh no, well, not statistics. For the record, there is a, an official CMP warning, for the record. Yeah, but there's like... I, we can talk about Marlin shotguns in a second. Um, here's the problem. Low number 1903s were fine until they weren't. And once they weren't fine, everybody goes, why did that blow up? And then the answer is, oh, it blew up because of uh, poor maintenance of the um, heat treating process. I've heard people make arguments about the steel quality and other things. There's a, there's a number of potential culprits that everybody likes to blame. What it comes down to is there was a process that was not going well. And then they, the, that process would give you a random chance of bad gun. And then those guns went on the serve for a long time. So, so the bad ones have been weeded out already. Maybe or maybe not. Because how often did a gun sit in a rack and get fired five times and then never really issued? 
Like how that that's you know just because it existed for that long in inventory doesn't mean it got you know rode hard and put up wet long enough right. to shake out the problem. So this is all a matter of statistics, right? Like, so you have a certain percentage. Now, the weird thing is you have a certain percentage chance of any rifle blowing up because failure, like metallurgical failure can happen even on some of the best guns. Even, you know, high quality guns have a rejection rate. So it's just a very, 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 very low chance. And then you've taken off a couple of varies because it's an early receiver 1903. But it's also become a total mythos about like, oh, they all blow up, and you're going, oh god, no, not that either, you know. Well, the price doesn't represent that they blow up. Yeah, no, I think <laughs> I think it's her fine. I mean, for the most part, yeah, especially if it's a little bit cheaper. The other problem is people like to cram any ammo they can get into any gun they can get. So it's just who the heck knows what's really going on there. But the chance, one of those things, it's like. I would do with a low number 1903 what I do with every firearm, which is I would load very appropriate ammunition with very appropriate loads and be careful. But most people don't. Like the, the overwhelming majority of people go, this fits, I'm pulling the trigger. To a degree <laughs> that would alarm you. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> so maybe just be careful. Right. Uh, what, oh, I'm sorry. So, what's the, so you said the CMP warning. Um, yeah. The, the, the so the Marlin shotguns is another one of these. Marlin external hammer shotguns are all seen to be dangerous because people say they can be assembled wrong or something, and that they'll blow up on you or whatever. I cannot find an instance of this happening. They use a very very powerful tilting block. It's super lovely, <laughs> and I have several, and I, I've only had one break down on me, and it's not dangerous. It's just that it it got tied up, and I need to go fix some things so that it stops tying up. It's just not feeding right, you know. So is it a preemptive <laughs> warning? No, what happened was Marlin, who hasn't been Marlin for 100 years, uh, th th these guys start doing single-action shooting, and they go, hey, I want to bring my Marlin. And then they go, well, aren't those unsafe? And I suspect the reason people think they're unsafe is because the inertial safeties on them break very easily. And so if you don't know what inertia safety is... Oh, God, okay. We're sidetrack again. When, <laughs> when smokeless powder first became available in America, it was very hydroscopic. It would take on water easily. When you combine that with a paper shotgun shell or even just a regular shotgun shell um, that's being left out or carried around in and out of doors, it's going to saturate a little bit. You know, there's whiskey in the jar, right? So it was very common for early smokeless shotgun shells to hang fire, not the black powder, which is why uh, the Spencer pump shotguns from that were more black powder era, they don't have inertia safeties on them. But then the Winchester 1893 doesn't have an inertia safety, and then all of a sudden it needs one because all these smokeless powders are making their way into the market and people are having hang fires, which means, with, especially considering you can slam fire, you pull the trigger, the gun goes click, you immediately eject the shell because you're irritated, and then the gun goes off because that ember in there has made it through the wet powder and actually set it off. So they add inertia safeties, which means that until the gun, you know, experiences inertia, as in boom, or you hit some sort of lockout button, the gun won't open up. And then that way, you're either cognizantly opening it, you're not just slam firing it, or the gun has actually gone boom, and therefore it's safe to empty it. Okay. Um, inertia safeties disappear very quickly after World War II, because smokeless powder stopped being so dang hydroscopic. And so modern shotguns don't tend to have inertia safeties. If you're shooting modern shotgun ammo, 
you don't need an inertia safety. So when people want to take Marlins for single action cowboy shoots, or even if they're shooting pure black powder for some reason, that would have been fine too. It's the it's the hydroscopic early smokeless that was the problem. So you don't need the inertia safety on a Marlin shotgun, which is fine because they were sort of an add-on because the original Marlin 1898 didn't have one. And then they went, crap, we got some complaints about hang fires detonating out of battery. So we're going to add these inertia safeties that we sort of ham-fisted into the gun and then kept for the next 20 years. And they suck. And so they wear out and they stop working, but the rest of the gun works fine because the rest of the gun was designed in a totally different environment. Um, so anyway, so the inertia... I, I, I'm speculating, but I believe it's the inertia safeties that were always broken that started the question. Um, but regardless, they go to Marlin, the modern company that has nothing in common with the antique company, and they go, hey, are these Marlin 1898 and derivative hammer fire shotguns, are they safe to fire? And Marlin goes... Uh, we in no way stand by a product made in the early 1900s. We cannot guarantee their safety. And then they all went, oh my god, they're unsafe. They're dangerous bombs. And you're like, oh my, you guys cannot read between the lines on this at all. They're frankly better than the 97s. They're lighter. They're beautifully really? locked up. They're wonderful and they're cheap as dirt until now that I said this and now everybody's going to blame me for raising the market up. Yeah, but I've I've shot hundred round clays with a Marlin Model Seventeen, which is a fixed frame eighteen ninety eight. I've I've blown through three hundred rounds and finally had an interrupter problem that I have to go fix. But I have other models that I just I shoot them all the time. They're beautiful. I gotta go get me one of those now. Yeah, I yeah I saw one that was even in a right gun size, like a short eighteen inch barrel. I think it was. Yeah, the other thing is people say the 98 was designed for black powder. That's not true. Um, there's an article I read from 1897 announcing the launch of the gun, and they specifically said it was designed for two and three quarter inch smokeless cartridges. So they'll even say that it's for two and a half inch. No. The advertising at the time said two and three quarter smokeless cartridges. All right, I have something on Remington here, but I don't have my sources here. I'll have to get uh, that for you. But... um. True shit or bullshit. Two rumors I saw were Remington was paid by the Russians or or influenced by the Russians to push their M91 contract over the Bertier one in 1915, and that they were paid by the Germans to slow down and screw up the Bertier contract. I would, Either of those true. I would highly discount the German claim. Like, I don't know why. I've never even heard that one. The Russian one, I've never seen any evidence of. But then again, that's the kind of thing that you wouldn't let evidence stick around for. <laughs> I find it f far more likely that Remington was just frustrated with France because they DQ'd a ton of their rifles. Like the the French inspectors were heinous with Remington, as far as I understand it. Which is weird because normally it's the Russians that are considered heinous. But I mean, I guess they both were pretty awful. <laughs> like it's a, right. it's I, a complete heard... emergency. We need whatever we can get. Oh, these aren't good enough. And you're going, oh god. Yeah, I was surprised France was so picky because they certainly needed them. Well, then you look at the P14s and you go, you know, maybe they were right because God, those are all out of spec from each other. <laughs> that was a, such a debacle. Yeah, I honestly, I don't know that there's enough data there to say for sure whether that'd be true or false. I mean, it, the the thing I can't understand is how the Russians would have afforded to do this because they were going, as far as I understood it, they were receiving all their money from loans from france and britain anyway so how the heck would they like i mean uh, it'd be amazing if they pulled it off and i'd love to find that information but they would have had to use france's money to bribe france. production over <laughs> france yeah 
Maybe they influence him like a Russian mafia style. Uh, not likely, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, wait. Well, speaking of the Russians, is it true shit or bullshit that they had so many Arasakas they started producing some rechambered in 762 by 54? Um, I don't know of any production in 762 by 54. I would imagine that they probably actually considered what it would take to rechamber them, but then you're talking about going to a rimmed cartridge from a rimless, which is not in, actually. It's a little easier than the other way around, but you know, with, had they tried rechambering them? I'm sure they tried rechambering them, but I doubt that they had the the what would you call it the industrial capacity to do a rechambering project during the war. And I, I found it interesting. I didn't realize they had like hundreds of thousands of Arasakas. Oh no, it was it was like <laughs> there was almost as many as there were Mosins for a while there. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think of the the Russians with that. There's, it is extremely easy to find photos of Russians with Arisaka during the war. Well, that's a new story I'm going to have to tell about my Arisakas. Almost all, <laughs> almost all the photos of the Lever Action 1895 seem to be in the hands of Czechs. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Like, the Czech Legion ended up with a bunch of the 1895s. They ended up with a bunch of Arisakas as well. So you can pretty much see, like, troops with Arisakas in 1895 Lever Actions. Did they mark them? Mark them. Like, uh, the, 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 the... Russians marked the Arasakas at all so that we would know? Not that I know of. They did. Um, there was a number of modifications to try to keep the magazine floor plate from release from being a problem. So I don't, you know, I don't want to say anything. Because the problem is somebody's going to go destroy an Arasaka trying to make it look like a Russian. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Like when the Germans modify the bayonet lug or something. Yeah, but the, the, you'd have to create a part for that. You could literally just do some damage to an Arasaka and claim it was a Russian Arasaka if I told you this, so I'm just going to leave that be. You can you can tell us, and we'll just bleep it out. For yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uncommon anyway. Like, it's just... It seems like maybe some units did that, but not uh, not universally done. Now, you can tell a Finnish Arasaka, because they marked them, and even when they didn't mark them, they put a sliding piece of metal to keep you from being able to bump the magazine release unintentionally. Uh, those I have seen, yeah. Well, they were so worried about that magazine release. Well, with gloved hands and larger fingers, <laughs> they would bump them, and then all their rounds would fall out of the gun. It was very annoying. <laughs> Forgot about the gloves. All right. Next up, we have a, another fun trio. This is a You Can't Shoot That Sunny trio of true shit or bullshit. Okay. So starting off of the You Can't Shoot That, You Can't Shoot Modern 77 by 58 ammo. Or anything except light reloads in a last ditch type ninety nine. No, I don't see why that would be a problem. Wait, why wouldn't you be able to shoot that? It's the same metallurgy on the barrel. The receivers are yeah. nice. Yeah, this was overheard at the uh, gun show. Someone said, "Oh, that's a last ditch. You can't, don't, you can't shoot anything out of that." It's probably just confusion over the training rifles. That's the thing. The training rifles really confused those guys for a long time. Because they were made out of, not all of them, but a lot of them, were, they, they have training rifles that are just like retired military rifles, but then you had training rifles that were just pot metal school rifles designed to fire blanks. But God help yeah. you, you could fit a cartridge in there, so inevitably yeah. somebody did. It's like <laughs> Japan's last revenge. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's definitely where that came from, all the... The interesting, the, 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 the interesting thing to me, though, is didn't Japan develop a naval replacement rifle where... The receiver yeah. was made out of terrible metal, but they used yeah. the barrel extension to lock the bolt. What model was that? That's a, isn't that a Type Thirty Five Naval Special? Cast iron? Or, yeah, it's a Naval Special, something like that. 
that that we are that is so underrated as a rifle concept i mean i understand that you know browning's uh auto five locks into its own barrel shank sure but being able to have a military rifle that locks straight into the barrel shank like that and therefore avoids having to have a rigid receiver is such a smart move no it's not the type 35 it was catch on I forgot what it was called. Yeah, it was a naval special, but I can't remember what it was. It had like the big old fat receiver because it was cast iron and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah they're brilliant. Which, by the way, tells you that Japan never gave up on locking strength. Like, they never did. Oh, yeah. Now, this here is very controversial. This is the biggest controversy we'll have here. You can't shoot that, Sonny. You can't shoot anything, including light reloads, out of any Italian veterly chambered in 6.5. Oh my god! I saw it on CN Arsenal. He blew up two of them. Yeah. So hang it on the uh, wall. I'm gonna say something. I'm gonna say something very controversial. <laughs> I do not regret for a second telling everybody just don't shoot it. Oh shit! Because okay. the problem is, you guys aren't me. No matter how much I try to couch the language, I cannot say to the public if you have the correct diameter, if you have the correct load. And if you do an inspection that includes checking that the chamber doesn't have rust, if you include not having any play in the locking collar, and then maybe something else I haven't thought of. Do you have to look for cracks with a magnifying glass? I don't think so. We had two failures with those guns. Um, and after the first one, we, we doubled down on checking the ammo, but our ammo is correct. So uh, I get, I get, uh, there's a guy, there's actually a guy, I swear it's one guy on multiple platforms. But he dogged us for a while about using the wrong diameter bullet. And I'm going, no, we, we ended up checking that. Like, we we made sure of that. We also got through all of our Carcano episodes without any problem. And meanwhile, we've seen what happens when you use the wrong ammo of those, too. And so we're, we're fine there. I will say we did have, we backed off the standard Carcano load even on the Vetterly. Not enough to give us dwell time problems and overpressure problems that I would think. It was only a little bit of like a 7% back off. Um, the problem was the first gun was running fine until it didn't. And what had happened was the locking collar cracked. And that was it. So it wasn't dangerous or anything. Well, I mean, it, it was in a sense, but all it's hard to explain. You'd have to have parts actually come off the cracked locking collar and then reassemble it and then fire it for it to be dangerous. It was still safe. It just stopped running, you know? Right. Um, because the collar was no longer fitting properly and it was tying up the gun. So when we saw that, we went, ah, oh, crap. So we just grabbed the next gun we had available to us, did a quick inspection on it, noticed that there was less play in the locking collar in the body. And oh, this is a gun. Uh-uh. And the play in the long wanted to a crack over the gun. So inspect that gun. And the way they are, there's a little bit of unsupported case head anyway, so we didn't think much of it until I went to test fire it, because this time I was like, well, I'm going to test fire it so that we know everything's okay with May. And I fired two rounds out of it with, our standard is string test, so we fired string test once, didn't notice any deformations, did notice a little bit of a Wait, mark. string test with everything? Uh, I mean, not everything, but oh, all right. usual, you know? <laughs> like we doing tests on Gehendra's the other day, I did those as string tests, you know? <laughs> because they have unusual wear. Okay. So string test uh, one round, case comes out with a little bit of a crinkle, and I'm going, eh, I don't know. String test two, case comes out fine. And I think, and sometimes you see that because it'll pull out some piece of whatever in the in the chamber and it has no problems. So string, we go from string test to shoulder fire with a uh, 
with a cloth over it, like a clean cloth, because then I'll see if there's a gas leak. So shoulder fire clean cloth, nothing in terms of gas leak, which was better than our first rifle. And then uh, I check the case, and the case looks fine. And so I went, oh, wow, okay, this one's good to go. I'll put one more round through it uh, just because it's here. Didn't think to put the cloth back on it or anything. Detonates in my hand, embeds a bunch of wood shards in my forehead. It looks like I had zits for, like, blackheads for, like, a month. <laughs> uh, luckily, I had glasses on, like I always do. Otherwise, I'd have lost vision for sure. Oh. And what had happened was it had failed at the unsupported case head section. Most likely when we were looking at it later, we realized that the chamber was rough right where that meets the unsupported section. And so it probably knife edged it a little bit or that the, the brass case that we had just was just weak enough in that spot where it hit the edge. I don't know. But I mean, we were looking at other cases going, I don't understand. I don't see where we would have had this problem. And then all of a sudden we did. And so it failed into the magazine well. And it expanded the magazine well, which then buckled the stock and threw wood splinters everywhere. So we took the bolt out of that gun, put it in the original one that had the bolt failure, which brought back our gas leaking a little bit. But the gas leaking was going up, not down. <laughs> and we did some more testing, and that one ran fine. And so that's you, you continued to shoot after that first one blew up. Like uh, My we, mind would have been like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So we, we get this we get the other one and that one ran fine. Break. And I know I'm getting you know, people are still saying, Well, your ammo's terrible, and I'm going, but we kept using like the whole entire time it's the same reload process. Obviously we shot the last one, which still had its little hiccupy gas leak, but that was a known factor for that one because what it was doing is it was uh having some overexpansion at the case mouth. Regardless, we got through the episode and then I've had a bunch of people dogging me about theirs has never had a problem. I'm going, Good. I'm glad yours is <laughs> like I'd I don't doubt that yours is not having a problem. I have no idea what stroke of magic or Sodom's... I call it Sodom's touch. Everything I touch turns to shit. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know what it was. Two, two failed. That it, you know, That's enough for you to say, maybe this, this gun's not for me. It's a little bad well, luck. The one thing that could bias that, though, is they were two out of the same collection. They were two that turned up at the same gun store from the same gentleman, and both were bought out of that gun store and used for this production because they were mm. local to us. So did somebody before swap parts on them or mess them up? I don't know. Hmm. But the point being is I can't, the, not everybody listening is actually that savvy to what we're doing. So if I say, if I just skip over the whole thing and don't tell them that it can happen, right? then they're going to go grab, because we all know the, the commercially available 6.5 at that time was not bored correctly. That was dangerous stuff to put in there. And no matter how much I put caveats on it, they're not going to do their due diligence and they're just going to say, well, he shot it, so I'm shooting it. So it's much easier to say no. And then a handful of people are going to go, well, I'm savvy enough to do this anyway. And congratulations, you are. But at least I don't put anything. I don't have no risk by saying no. You know, it's the right. it's like asking Marlon, hey, do you stand by the uh, 1898 hammer fire? Hell no, we don't. We don't even know what that is. Like, it's just, hey, Othaya, should I shoot this? No. To be fair, that's going to be my answer for everything. Should I shoot this? No, <laughs> don't shoot it. It's not my problem if you do. He told me to shoot it. Yeah, it's a... It's a very, it's very nuanced. I, I don't... I wouldn't say that they're inherently unsafe and that you should never shoot any of them, but unfortunately, I can't... Well, some people hear you start saying numbers, too. Like, if you started saying, you know, make sure the diameter is, you know, th three point... But they just hear blah, 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 blah. All right, he, I, may shooting it now i'm gonna go shoot it oh they'll take it and they'll put it upside down in the muzzle crown and be like oh yeah that's fine 
Right. And they'll see some 6.5 for sale go, but perfect. Right. So a lot of people are mad at me for that episode for saying that you can't shoot them when their ass isn't in the wind. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, honestly, the biggest problem with that rifle, and the thing I'll stand by forever, is there's no margin of error. Like the, the the problem with that gun is that it can catastrophically fail that easily with a slight overbore or a slight overcharge, whereas a Carcano usually won't, you know? Yeah, they've been updated and modified so much, there's not much left. To be fair, I would tell people don't shoot um, Lee Navies. I'd just be like, you know what, you don't shoot it. Because then if you take it as a challenge and you go, well, I'm going to look everything up about this and carefully shoot it and get it just right, and then that'll show them. Okay, well, I guess that you're the guy that's allowed to do that then. But for the average person, they're n- they're not going to do any of that. So when we do when we do the Lee Navy episode, I'm going to be like, yeah, don't try this at home. This took a lot of effort to get this just right. Yeah, and they're not they're not going to find ammo for that anyway, so that's a little safer. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They're not going to get some crap ammo over the counter. That the ammo the the availability of bad ammo for the 6.5 Vetterly was a big part of the decision to say that because it was just like, oh god, we really can't put ourselves in this position. Yeah, it makes makes sense that you now that you explain a little bit more. But yeah, yeah, yeah. we know the guy that that blasts his all the time, and he's always having fun with them. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad it's in good shape. In theory, it should work. This is the problem: is that it's a. I mean, it's just rear locking, but that's not a big deal. But it has you know symmetrical locking lugs. And this guy's shooting the RTI ones, so they've uh, oh, been God. been through it. Yeah. But he does, he does have some that he say he won't shoot because yeah you can tell they're in rough shape and got unsupported chamber and everything. I would also look at the uh, locking collar fit. That I really I can't. The problem is I didn't pay that much attention before it failed. But boy, because what other gun do you know that has a locking collar that's separate from the bolt body like that in that specific donut way? Yeah. And so that was one that really stood out to me after the fact. Where I'm like, mm, that would have been the thing to know about ahead of time. But how could you? I have an even scarier gun here now, anyway. So, Ooh. care to share? Uh, we have the other Vetterly. Um, the Swiss? Swiss? No. Do you guys how how boned up? Are you guys ready for a quiz? Ooh. Yeah, good. Okay, what can you name another country that converted their black powder, uh, originally single shot rifles into single? Sh- well, actually, in this case, single shot. Oh no, magazine. I'm sorry. They took single shot black powder rifles. And converted them to their standard smokeless cartridge with a magazine. Smokeless magazine. Yep, mag- they added a magazine and everything. Need a hint? It's a Mauser country. Shit. They converted a ton of their things. As a matter of fact, it's very hard to find their single shot Mausers mm. in black powder. It's even oh. harder to find one converted to their standard cartridge. The Belgians? No. Dang it. Got Belgians- maybe- Wait, the Belgians didn't have a single shot Mauser. Uh, oh, single shot Mauser. I thought yeah. you said just a Mauser country. Yeah, it's a the, Mauser country. The... Uruguay? Uh, they actually did do that, but not in Great War. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good call, but also not the Great War. Shit. Uh, okay, you need another. China, you need China, one more hit. One, one more hit. China had the 71 also. Uh, no, yeah, no, no. one more hit. Seven millimeter. Seven. Who, did, who would do that? Yeah, I don't know who. who Sounds all had. South American. Nope, nope. Serbia. Serbia. Oh, fucking Serbia. Yeah. So they did. Uh, I went. I, I really was hoping to even photograph one of these rifles, and I actually bumbled into one for uh, the chance to buy. Like, 
a certain mustachioed gentleman was like, hey, were you looking for one of these? And I went, oh, crap. <laughs> but uh, Serbia actually converted their single-shot Mausers into um, 7 millimeter, starting in, I believe, like, oh, crap, now my dates have slipped out of my mind. 07, 09, somewhere in there. Like, before the Balkan Wars, they were kind of doing it. And then they dialed it up. But there's photos. Like, you can find Great War photos of guys with uh, magazine 7mm conversions. And uh, it is so rare as to be terrifying to consider doing. But they also managed to make them front-locking with their modifications. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah, they took everything off the barrel, pressed a steel ring over that had a locking lug on the right side, and then they cut a locking lug into the bolt handle root that runs the length of those guns. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it's that, pretty pretty wild. That'll be cool to see. I'll, I'll look forward to that episode. Yeah, I just gotta bring up the courage to, you know, actually shoot that. Do it. <laughs> it's only rare. <laughs> also, I have no access to a the original black powder version. I have to find some of those first so that I can do the whole thing together. Yeah. Yeah. Make, yeah, make sure you stress it in the video that when you do shoot it, because you're going to end up getting convinced to do it, that how, how scared you are. <laughs> I weirdly have more faith in that than I do in the uh, better lease. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you have to see it. It's very robust looking. Got to look it up. All right. Our last, you can't shoot that Sonny. Is a you cannot shoot standard eight millimeter Lebel out of a Bertier unless it has an in marked chamber or barrel. Wait, is that a thing? Where are you well, guys getting say, these? You guys are getting weird FUD claims. If if <laughs> you can't shoot it, yeah. If you, uh, it's not going to be as accurate. But doesn't wait. have an N. It has to have an N. Oh, 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 I see. Co current commercial ammo. Yeah. Right. I mean. I've actually done this, but to be okay, so Priv, because <laughs> I had a Polish uh, 0715 that was never updated. Um, I actually traded it over to Ian. Um, that gun was not an end chamber, and it would run Priv a little tight, but Priv is actually kind of in between if you really get into it. I have not had the chance to actually take like the ball end and shove it in a non end gun. I don't imagine it would be fairly tight, though. I mean, it would probably do what happens when you shoot uh, unconverted German Mausers, though. I doubt it would blow up the gun or anything, but it's going to run tight as crap, and you're going to get really hot barrel really fast. But I'd right. have to go look at the dimensions, because I've had that happen. I had a guy that had a Czech 98, and he was shooting standard, you know, like, I think, like, Yugo surplus through it. And he was talking about how cooking hot it was so fast, and I went, this was never Spitzer updated? Like, I looked at the rear sight, and I went, what the crap? This is a, was it, 318 is the original? Yeah. <laughs> I went, oh, God. Uh -oh. And I looked inside the gun, and, of course, the rifling is, like, all but gone, because he's not the first guy to have done that. <laughs> I think the Czechs were doing it. <laughs> I don't know. I've never actually tried sticking in, in a non-end chamber. I think you could do it, and like you said, there was just, like, accuracy and other issues. Yeah, you'll just get you'll get a ton of heat when you do stuff like that. Yeah. But if you were to do that on a Vetterly, it might explode because it has no margin for safety. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Okay, there. Um US model 1917s blew up as much or even more than 1903s. Uh true. Oh shit. No more. I don't know the same ratio, but they that's for sure. 
like we were saying before, though, that like with the 1970s was mostly an ammo thing. Yeah, it's been done. In ammo. Uh, this is hard to know how much of it was ammo, how much of it was rifle. It's confused with the early receiver story because yes, they did the pyrometer thing. Then yes, there was some other metallurgical concerns, but also the Winchester ammo was terrifyingly dangerous at times. So how many blew up from which problem is kind of hard to say. And I couldn't tell you, I haven't sat down and done the numbers on how many 1917s versus how many 1903s. That would actually be a question for someone like Archival Research Group. But um, yep. I do know that 1917s were popping. Like, that did happen. So you feel safer shooting a 1917, a, 19, a low serial 1903, or a uh, in 6.5? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with appropriate load for each rifle. Safe answer. Yeah. Oh, just shoot, just shoot thirty out three, low like velocity ammo out of the early receiver because that's what it was developed for, right? Yeah. What could that sounds right to me? Yeah. You heard it here, folks. Yeah. Otaya said so. <laughs> That'll keep them busy for a little while. <laughs> oh, before before we move on, is there any fud lore or milsert myths that you've heard over the years that you just remembered as one of your favorites? Oh, God. I can't remember one off the top of my head. I probably have 17 in there, but I've just forgotten them all. <laughs> I do know that one I hear a lot is just that the Germans were afraid of the trench gun, and that's why they did whatever. And you're going, no, no, they were just doing political point scoring because it's what everybody was doing. Yeah, they, they had been accused of a war crime, so they were looking for a chance to accuse somebody else of a war crime. That's really all it was. They just all of them accused each other of war crimes over everything. So that's yeah. it was just more of the same. Were, were there other war crimes they were saying that this just happened to be the, the oh yeah one? Oh yeah, I can't. I'd have to go look it up. But I mean, just if you go look and if you go look at the cables back and forth, everybody was constantly accusing everybody of everything. Yeah, with the sawback bayonets and the no, that was actually never that actually never was an accusation. No, as far oh. as I can tell, no. It became a rumor that that was going to happen. So it's weird. It's actually the same thing. So on the U.S. side, it's just like, oh, they said that if they caught us with a trench gun, they were going to execute us and blah, blah, blah. And that's what they did. They executed <laughs> all the guys with the trench guns. On the German side, they had the same thing earlier in the war. They, it was said that if you, because they they um, they would issue sawbacks to like one in ten guys. So that way there would be a couple of them around. Not everybody got one. Wait, am I thinking of the Swiss system or the German system? No, I think, I think it was the Germans because they had the spike. They had the sort of spiky looking one. Oh, God, I'm going off my memory. That's never good. The point being is not everybody got a sawback, I believe. And then uh, this rumor started on the German side that if you got caught with a sawback, you would be executed on site. And I, they don't, nobody figures out where it started. None of the allies seem to have made this claim. So then the German soldiers all start like trying to play hot potato with the sawbacks. And it became such a problem because none of them wanted to carry it that they had to go, look, can we please take the saw off of these things? But so they had to, because it was just it was causing morale issues. Jeez. So it was a non-problem. Like yeah, I have one with the the saw ground off. I thought that was kind of an in interesting tidbit. Yeah, it's just human panic, which is actually really believable. That's the funny thing is just the idea that you have to cut off all your saws because your men have freaked themselves out over something that isn't true is totally believable. All right, so we have one more section here of questions that we asked our friends and our collector pals and emails and all this stuff here. So this is what people want to hear your opinion of. Oh, good. S simple stuff like, 
what what's worse, a Millsurp rifle with all mismatched parts or an all-matching example in a sporterized, shitty, cut-down stock? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you that that depends highly. Ooh. For me personally? Let's just say it's a, a, a K98 or something. Just for me to own, I'll take the mismatch out every day. I don't care. Um, as long as it's all there. And especially if, if everything is correct to that era, I'm fine. Um, Kelly, one day we're going to find someone that likes sporterized guns. One day. Well, yeah. the problem is that sporterized, <laughs> sporterized can be better if you're doing research and it's all matching and it tells you what you need to know. You know, if assuming the missing parts aren't what you're looking for. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Good point. Or, and uh, the other consideration was something that you could easily swap, like a, oh, you can go find a K98K stock pretty easily. To... On, on occasion, a sporterized gun has been better. So, like, my buddy Jay, who wanted to make a repro of the known 1917 carbine that was found in one of the arsenals in Germany, where somebody cut one down during the war. Yeah, um, that was cool. Yeah, so he wanted to make one, so he wanted he didn't want to ruin a 1917, so he had to hold out for a sporterized one, which he did, and then he built that. And we're kind of doing the same thing. I have to, I've got, I feel really bad. It's been with the gunsmith. And I need that was to your, keep. that's your influence again. That's what one of our friends is doing. Yeah, I gotta go kick somebody. I gotta go kick somebody up the tail feathers. But I've got a buddy that was supposed to be doing the work on it. It's been over a year now. Now that I think about it, we had somebody give us a really dogged out nineteen um, uh, smelly, like just un unrecoverably dogged out smelly, and uh, we're taking that, and we're gonna have to NFA it so that we can do one of the quote unquote tunnel rifles. Because Ooh, I have found cool. I have found a few mentions of what was going on there. So everybody likes to talk about them as being like this thing that was everywhere. And it's like, no, however, just like anything else that spreads like this, there was a grain of truth in there. So we're trying to do our best to build what would have been one, which is not what people think it was. was. No. I, suspect, I, I think a lot of the cut down rifle stuff, like the Obrez rumors are mixing up later Russian obrezes with earlier World War One cutdowns. And then also in World War One there were igniters, which were like old worn out rifles that were cut down and had their stocks cut off to just a little pistol grip. But then they were used to ignite artillery and mortars and stuff. And, cool. and so people would see those or they turn up in you know digs and stuff and they go, oh look what they were doing. They're cutting them down. And you're going, no, that's just an igniter. Like it was designed to set off another charge. So the examples we know of that are actually documented, so the like the one nineteen seventeen that turned up in a German arsenal, it, it has a full stock. The examples I know of written by one account of a British armorer also mention that they kept the stock. Like there was no, why would you take the stock off? Is sort of the general consensus because yeah. I, I know handguns were hard to find, but it's not like you couldn't find a couple to put into the tunnel. Yeah. It, it seems more likely that people just wanted like ultra short carbines for that same operation or similar operations, and so they they would make a couple of them off of otherwise damaged guns, and then they got yelled at that for that anyway. <laughs> All right, next, which is worse to read, the French alphabet or the German alphabet for serial numbers? <laughs> it's gonna be the French. You can read the German one. Some of the Germans, the A and the N and no. stuff, but the French no, is no, the terrible. French is most, awful. most French. <laughs> yeah, the that French. That French script is so friggin' difficult to read. Yeah. Um, you got an E or a T or an F. Yeah, good luck figuring that out. 
Right. Sometimes it's like five different letters it could be. It's it's yeah, not good. All right. Why do South American Mazas get no love, but people will take out a second mortgage for a Persian 9829? Yeah, I remember when those didn't have any love either, though. I actually have a little Iranian carbine <laughs> that I spent like 200 bucks on, you know? But well, now that those Persians and the, the little small ones, the thir M30s, they're going high. Is Wait, is it your fault for not doing more videos on South American Mazas? Well, I mean, we do have the Argentine 1891 coming up. Ooh. And, uh, Pro tip, they used Marcotti steel for the barrels. What kind? Wait, what, what, what is that? Good steel. They used really. That's the good Yeah, one? there's a reason why those Argentine 1891s are always in, like, even when they've been sporterized and effed with, they always seem to shoot straight. They have insane. They actually have really good barrels. Oh, awesome. And that's all of them? Long rifles and the I don't know, As far as I know. Yeah, right. Those are gorgeous rifles with, like, the fire yeah. blue on the trigger and everything. Yeah, go buy one now before my episode goes out. Ooh, maybe I'll. I have one for sale right now. Maybe I'll stop selling it. Yeah, stop selling it. Yeah, right. All right. Next. Next question. What do we got? What do you see is the most commonly faked stampings on Millsurps other than German guns? No, other than German markings. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, U.S. It's got to be U.S. after German. Yeah, you do see flaming bombs like. Oh my God! Trench gun, trench gun, trench gun. Damn, that's a good one. Yeah, the inspector markings, trying mm -hmm. to make them look fresh. Yeah, I think that's it. We were thinking about the French capturing firearms, did, and we couldn't think of any mark they ever did. Do you know of any that the French marked or did something to a gun to... Not off the top know? of my head. Yeah. I was thinking maybe it's that little star they had, like, on the rubies and Spanish revolvers, but... Have you seen that on anything? I, I, would, have to, I would have to really look, because they're small. But no, I haven't. <laughs> not that I can think of. It's weird. Some people mark them all up and then they just kind of just, I guess, just reuse them. That's it. All right. So based on your own personal experience and not like the value or the rarity here of anything. Uh -huh. So what's the better Mauser variant? The 1903 Springfield or the Type 99 Arasaka? <laughs> uh, if I'm just shooting around? Yes. Your, your, your personal shooting. How, what do you like? What do you enjoy shooting more? I prefer shooting the 1903 more because it's just a straight uh, cock on open. I don't like the pressure setting the cock on close, especially on the RSOC with that short um, bolt handle. Like It's just a little bit more disturbance on the aim. And now the sights. I actually like blade sights, but see, I'm shooting for fun. What? Oh, I love the 99 sights. <laughs> no, they're great. They're great combat sights. Actually, wow. Nine-hole um, nine reviews did a great episode with the type 99 talking about how he actually came to love the sights on that gun but there's a difference between me poke because uh, the problem is you're talking about oh okay personal you just want to shoot it okay i'm gonna be trying to hit it like six seven hundred yards because that's fun and i'm gonna be playing with the little battle computer and the blade sight that's on the 1903 <laughs> because the blade sight is totally geared to exactly that like the, the 1903 is a sporting rifle the Arisaka is a better combat rifle. If I had to issue a rifle to troops, especially troops working in the southeast, I would issue the Arisaka. Like chrome barrel, dust cover, stock that drains water, extremely strong and reliable. It's a better combat rifle than the 1903, which will make people mad. But it's not. That's I guess that's not how the question was asked. Well, most people don't like the the, the sights so much on the 1903 that they always. Yeah, they always complain it's too thin, hard to right. see. No, I'm fine with that. I have apparently. I mean, I have terrible glasses and everything, but I don't have trouble <laughs> focusing on blade sights. 
I, I do prefer very thin blades for target shooting. Yeah. Yeah, I got. I took out. Oh God, Ian left all that steel case ammo here, and I took some of it out in the 1903, and just futzing around with the sights, I just put one on at 600 with that terrible steel case stuff, and it was a nice clangy hit on an Ipsic target. I mean, not even like a big target, like a little Ipsic. And I went, oh, that was really satisfying. So of course, I spent the rest of the mag trying to hit it before I realized I'm shooting like not even remotely match grade ammo. And I went, oh, this is this is an endeavor that will drive me insane. I need to stop. And maybe your first shot was way off, and it. <laughs> yeah, or I just got, or I got lucky. I was at the intersection of the ammo doing what it was supposed to do, and me aiming. Yeah, if you do it once, all right, now do it again. Then you're actually good. But I mean, with properly loaded ammo, it's quite repeatable. But I just happened to do it once with steel, and then did not remember what I had in the mag, and got really frustrated with myself. You know, I had a, uh, a K98 that was keyholing, and it was such a tiny grouping. It was pretty funny to see a tiny grouping of keyholes. <laughs> so it was accurate. It was going to kill you. Well, that's when you load a really light bullet and just keep it as a self-defense rifle. <laughs> Do like K98 self-defense. Get far more yeah, I call this Mr. Slappy Hands. <laughs> you get 60% more bullet per bullet. Oh, we, we did talk about this. Uh, it says best mouse around. Six, five, seven, eight, Seven six or thirteen seven. millimeter. I put. So. Oh yeah, so thirteen millimeter would. I'd love to have more. I get emailed about that once every month. Hey, where do I get that? Uh, you don't. All right, here's a here's a fun one because you wrote the guide on some of these. So, okay. would, you be, would you be more able to accurately describe and name all of the Dutch Monlicker models? Impossible. All of the Ottoman and Turkish <laughs> rifle models. Uh, or, quite doable. Or all oh. of the Monlicker straight pull rifles. That one's far by far the easiest. 22 you have. 22 what? Different models on your uh, guide. 27 Turks and 17 Dutch Monlickers. The Turks is like an old gun forge thread, right? Well, it's the old... Uh, I took it from the quick and dirty guides. Yeah, I actually there's a thread on gun boards when I was trying to create that. It actually probably needs to be updated a little bit. But yeah, two, um 2014 one of these is from Yeah. Oh, yeah, most of them, yeah. I miss doing this. I wish I had more time. Yeah, those are super helpful. Also, I wish SEO would help me out. I don't know what happened, but the internet got a lot rougher to get anything directed at where you put it. <laughs> but the Dutch Monlicker one is the one that's helped me the most with the hand guards and the you know, all those crazy different configurations. Oh, my yeah, gosh. I love how kooky they are. Hey, how old? Uh, I, for, I, have, I have forgotten about these for so long. How old is the Dutch Monlicker one? Oh, God, 2014. It's probably out of date. Well, don't use the I'm looking at it. Well, it's a, it's the, episode, the episodes are better. I actually meant to go back and do one, but like time. I'll tell you what. Just make one off the... Uh, you guys can make one off the episode, because in the episode, I really cleaned up a lot of this. All right, Tom, we got a task. All right. I got to update the dirty guide. Yeah, because, you know, the quick and dirty doesn't include some of the mythical ones that don't exist anymore. <laughs> have to clean up the dirty guide. Yeah, in, 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 in supposedly, like, the Nil Cavalry, there was, like, a first pattern Nil Cavalry that looked like a uh, Car 88, had nose cap and everything. Oh, no. Mm, that's cool. But nobody's seen one. Like I don't even I don't even think there's any. The interesting thing is they, they didn't keep like templates of these in the Dutch museum or anything because that was Indonesia, so they were like that's their problem. So they don't even have them 
as reference examples back on the continent. So a lot of this is just just sort of figuring out from reports. Uh, Bass Martins did a book on these. That's beautiful. And talking to him, it's sort of like, yeah, they they from requisitions, there was apparently a nose cap for the cavalry. So I guess they had a car 80. Like we would guess it looked like a car 88. So some of it's just speculative. Mm. We're going, oh, it must have looked like, oh, and then the Marie Chaussee stole them all. Because that's mm-hmm. what happened every time. Like that whole episode was just, I love that episode because I'm just going, and then the Marie Chaussee stole them all. And then the Marie Chaussee stole them all. <laughs> just every time anybody got a gun, the Marie Chaussee showed up and stole them all. I remember when I got my Dutch going down the list and going, uh, oh, this is mine. Wait, no. All right. Oh, here it is. No, no. Slings will is 45 degrees off. It would it would help if I colorize this and the dates are probably a little off now too because this was this was available American information before I got a hold of Bass Martin's books. There's oh. also like there's an original 1895 nil long rifle which is not the one that anybody sees. There is a photo of one of those available um, because in 1911 they like lightened the gun up further and put that gas check in there and everything. So like there is a simplified pattern of the 1895 colonial long rifle that no one owns because none exist all right so you have 17 now so you you're you're mentioning already a few more so that's going to be over 20 different variants well it's in the episode the episodes have all of them and the turks of the saying like a gen the turks had 27 different little updates and changes and that's crazy i know the dutch fairly well right now because we were in texas in may we were in a gun shop in Texas, and May goes, uh, there's a Dutch monlicker over here. And I go, that's nice. And she goes, there's a Dutch monlicker over here. And I went, oh, I should go over there. And yeah. uh, <laughs> it, shop. They, it was, um, was it Jackson? Is that what it's called? Oh, up in Dallas. Yeah, Jackson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those guys, oh, I have a story about that if you want it. Um, but no, they had an old model number one cavalry, like no bayonet lug, no, like all cut down like it's supposed to be. Mint matching. And I went, oh, I need that. Ooh. And then later on, I bumbled into a number two old model, which is the Mario Chaussee folding bayonet. So I went, oh, now I have the two rare ones. So I guess now I'm doing this. Uh, are you a good negotiator? Uh, yes. <laughs> the general rule is if they haven't offered you at least 20% off, they're insulting you. <laughs> All right, yeah. I got to think of that. Yeah, I try, not, try never to pay t- sticker price any, on anything. All the Zoomers around me are like, they knocked $5 off. And I'm going, that's a $700 purchase. What are you doing? <laughs> I have to get better at that. I'll be like, well, so will you do 500 No. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you just got to be ready to walk away. All right. So who had the best response to the, to the LaBelle and their smokeless powder? From 86 to 92, they were eight new cartridges for the major countries to 92 oh wait, are we talking, I, I, wait just the cartridge i'm talking about yeah. the cartridge so the 3040 crag the 65 carcano 65 arasaka the oh, 303 God. the 762 by 54 the patron 88 the 765 by 53 am I judging, the, wait am i judging the cartridge or the powder like the cartridge it by 92 or the cartridge as it evolved uh well, well to make it fair by 92 which was the the early ones, yeah. Oh, the Lobel. Which was the best cartridge at that point? Like, wasn't the German powder better, burned better or something? The German powder burned better, but it stored... So that's the thing is, on performance out the gate, the German powder was great. 
but then the problem they ran into is when they stored it i believe they prepped it with alcohol and then that would i can't remember exactly how that because i'm not a chemist the german powder in storage after like 15 20 years or even 10 i guess was cooking itself so it was uh it was getting hotter the longer it sat there so then they'd go fire it and they were getting you know breaches and failed cases and stuff like that <laughs> and they're going oh crap oops yeah so that's the problem because that's uh, what the um so in 88 it was pretty good yeah the argentines did that they went with uh the belgian cartridge but they took the german powder so technically the argentines had a slightly faster cartridge than the belgians so honestly the, so i can't i can't make the I, I cannot make the call because i don't know the powders well enough to be honest with you i'm not that good on how long each powder stayed in in around and that's the real argument actually is who had the best smokeless powder in the first wave is really the question you're asking when you talk about those cartridges because yeah. none of them are different enough to merit anything above what their powder reliability was and consistency of the powder and storage potential of the powder. So if you discount the powder, I greatly prefer the 6.5 cartridges because they managed to get flatter trajectory and less sight adjustment and still plenty of uh, damage fairly quickly. So like the Italians get credit for doing that pretty quickly. And I think 6.5 I think 6.5 Carcano was a smart cartridge when it was adopted. It just didn't last past Spitzer. Once Spitzer was developed, it became kind of pointless. All right, so it had its its run ten years or so, eleven. Yeah, years. and then you pair it with a Carcano rifle, and everybody goes ew, and you go, well, yes, but still, it was a good cartridge. I'm trying to think of like the Swedes took in their cartridge in '94, so that would be outside of the realm of possibility. Now, the cartridge that had the most longevity to me, obviously, is going to be like seven millimeter uh, or eight millimeter Mauser. Both of those had really long legs. I can't actually. Did any of them others yeah, right. have really long legs? Like six point, all the six point fives ended up. So like six point five Carcano, they wish they could have gotten rid of it. Six point five Japanese. Oh yeah, when did three hundred three get adopted? Mm, 18... 1889. Okay, so that's fairly early. But three hundred three was a rimmed cartridge that had its own limitations. Everybody likes to argue with me about yeah. that, but I don't think a rim cartridge is going to have the longest lasting. I think it was very forward thinking to add extra features to your bolt actions just to get a rimless cartridge in the service because that makes you future proof for auto loading. I guess technically longest serving is 54R because it's still being used. <laughs> True. Yeah, I'm going to give it to... I mean, easily the one that lasted the longest... Well, not just like lost along this while being intelligent would be you know eight millimeter Mauser, but I'd say seven millimeter was probably smarter. And then in that moment, if you had to freeze, you know, eighteen ninety two, you froze the ammunition that was available, and it didn't change for the next century. I would probably have gone with a six point five, like the Carcano. No thirty forty Crag love ever. Yeah, yeah. No, no that cartridge thirty forty Crag is just a bad cartridge in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was not a very optimized cartridge for what it was. Yeah, and nobody seems to pick it ever or like it. We're also all bitter about the availability of brass. Oh, yeah. Yeah, one's salty about that one for sure. All right, here's a little, little changing history tidbit. If you were sent back in time to be the head honcho of either of these committees, what would your recommendation be f for their adoption? Oh, God. So we have the 
1865 U.S. trials and the 1888 German trials. Wait, which? Oh, crap, I don't know which guns were being offered in those trials. Based on what's available, what would you... Uh, oh, just picking anything from the market? Pick anything for the hell, I guess. You don't have to pick specifically, because you, you're you probably one of the only people that would know exactly... Would, yeah, would be yeah, able yeah, to figure yeah. out exactly what was there. If you know, I'm the... Peabody, but we're not, you don't have to pick the Peabody. No, I think the Peabody would have been a pretty smart choice for the U.S. That or the rolling block. Either one of those would have been excellent. The 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 trapdoor was uh, ultimately an economic decision. Yeah, everything I read was they were that it was more important to have something that the con- you could convert the old muskets and it's the same exact action of as the the, the new rifle. In honesty, you know, I hate to say it, but they were it was the correct decision. But it's the correct decision that was. It became the correct decision because nothing happened. Like the the trap door served through a very peaceful era for the you know U.S. and people are going, oh, you know the Swiss by then they they were doing you know bolt action repeaters with magazines, and you're going, yeah, yeah. The U.S. wasn't really fighting anybody back then. I mean, not until the Spanish American War, at which point we suddenly realized, oh crap. All of our stuff is all over the place. Even our most modern gun has five different versions and none of the parts interchange. Like, it was kind of a wake-up call even though we trounced the Spanish because we trounced them with other means. You know, it's, again, the strategies and the uh, the heavy equipment made up for the deficiency in the small arms. But, yep. you know, the Spanish-American War was such a wake-up call that we designed the 1903. So, the... That was, the, again, 7mm Mauser that they, right, that they faced. Yeah, oh yeah. That was well, awesome. the then the but the trapdoors were in use in the Spanish American War, but I don't know that they were all that worse than any other single shot black powder that we would have hauled into that conflict. They certainly didn't put us, yes, you know, they had the rolling block and that didn't seem to put us down too hard against the trapdoor. And it was very economical, and the U.S. was a very small government, small spending nation at that time. So I don't think the trapdoor was a bad decision. So I you just, weren't, you weren't ready for some sort of repeater push at that point, I guess, because you're saying because. No, there's there's no reason for the U.S. to have done a repeater push at that point. Not really. Like the U.S. was, we forget how not U.S. centric the world was at that time. Now Germany, Germany was trying to build an actual empire, uh, hold on to it. So the eighty-eight decision would have been totally different. The problem with the eighty-eight decision is they were too fast. Now, did they really not ask Paul Mauser? Did they they not ask him, or was he too busy with? The Turkish contract. The Germans, as far as I understand, believe that they could survey the field, pick all the best features, dump them into one gun, and win. And they did exactly that, though. Uh, they The Monlicker and Block system was, at that time, the best system. Paul uh, Mauser developed the Scriver Clip immediately after that. So, whoops. And yep. then the, the uh, Barrel Jacket system was absolutely the best system available at that moment. And then it turns out you could just step the barrels, and that allows for heat expansion. Whoops. Or you could even float them. Whoops. You know, and then it just it goes down the line. Um, well, if you were there and you had to tell them to slow down, would you still take a part of a monlicker and a, or would you try to go with Paul? Well, yeah, to be honest could... with you, if you're told, look, you have to choose from these features that are in the field, the Gavari 88 is not the worst decision you can make. I consider it to be a superior decision to some of the things the British were doing right out the gate, you know? The, <laughs> yeah. the problem is... They were in two. It really is. You just needed to pump the brakes. Like they really felt that they were under threat, 
and that they had to act right away. And I get it, in Germany's case, they had such a massive standing army, they had to get something into play so that they could rearm within five years, you know, because it's going to take time once they start the ball rolling. But I don't think that they were so desperately outgunned that they couldn't have relied on their artillery and other planning to keep them from being overwhelmed in an instant. Because it was going to take France time to load it, to roll out the Labelle, and the Labelle had problems too. But I couldn't say that you could pick a better gun because it really required a layer of development. I mean, Mauser, look at the 1889 Mauser, right? That's a that's the first of what I would call the acceptable uh, smokeless repeaters, right? That's the first time you get a smokeless repeater that is truly acceptable the way it is, and it can stay in service all the way through World War One with almost no real changes. I mean, very minor mechanical changes. That gun still has a barrel jacket, still suffers from lack of primary, you know, lack of a uh, controlled feed, lack of strong primary extraction. Like, there's all sorts of problems in that gun, and it's still miles better than the Gvarity. <laughs> so, like, stuff was happening really yeah. fast. Yeah, so it's also might... why I don't make too much fun of the Carcano too, because you go, really, guys, like, look, or, look in 1891, name a better gun in 1891 and it's like you're gonna have some people pointing at the lee metford you're gonna have some people pointing at the argentine 1891 and then they're gonna shrug <laughs> like you're really not gonna find a lot better so let's say they waited a year they're and still, paul mauser put out something that he probably wouldn't have the barrel jacket on his gun you know at this point well, but if you, if you wait a year you end up with the ottoman 1890 and that's about as best as you can do all right so that's probably what they'd they switch to a Mauser at that point, and yeah, probably would have gone the same route as the Belgians. Yeah, way. it's the the problem is it takes a couple of years for it to all shake out. I don't. It's it's one of those things where the Gavarity is awful, and you can't really blame anybody. Right. It was it was exactly what they wanted to do, but it is very much the best ideas available at that time, and not a single new original idea in it. Like, what if you had? What if you invented nothing and only took what was available in the market, and this is what you got? Oh. It turns out the market was not ready for this. <laughs> well, were they the first to have the Monlika clip that you could put it either way? Yeah, they did make it reversible. Reversible, yeah. That was a function of choosing a rimless cartridge, which was very smart. That's really the smartest thing they did. Right. All right, so maybe we tell the Germans to uh, slow down. That would be the advice. Yeah. All right, here we are. We're in the stretch run here. The final question's in the speed round. The fan favorite. So, this is very easy. We just want to get your preferences first on certain firearm preferences. Cock on open or cock on close? I mean, I personally prefer cock on open. All right, how about turn bolt or straight pull? Well, I pref- I'm going to say there's not that big of a difference. The one thing I have noticed is most of the time when people execute straight pulls, they don't execute them in a way that puts your finger back near the trigger, which is a downside to them. You could make a straight pull that dropped you near the trigger, but nobody does. Hmm. So I think that's where the straight pull loses some of its advantages, is that it doesn't put you near the firing position. And anytime someone takes a straight pull down to cycle it, it seems to... Oh, it's so much worse. We. Some of the straight pulls we've had to work with, there's just no way to lower them. Everybody yells at us for lowering rifles, but there's we're trying to show the action, we're trying to show the ejection, we're trying to show the feed, we're trying to also inspect cases as we go for damage. 
and we're trying to slow down the, the, the operation of everything so that we can see what we're doing while filming. And so we're okay with doing that. It's not supposed to be a tactical shoot, but straight pulls kind of fly in the face of that. <laughs> and we usually have to like run a camera on a jib or something so you can actually see the extraction. So not having to pull the jib yeah. out is great. But with straight pulls, it's like, oh, get the stupid jib out. We haven't used that in years. <laughs> uh, blued receivers are in the white receivers. Blued makes more sense. But in the white looks nice. They're pretty. All right. Ne next quick question for the infield number four rifle bayonet, the nail spike or the blade bayonet? Uh, I prefer the spike. Oh, the spike. Oh, I, shit. I, I like the spike bayonets as a concept, especially that they got brought back because they, I just love the concept that they went, we don't really need bayonets anymore. We, it's just not a thing we need anymore. And they go, yeah, 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 we wow. don't. And then they go, however, we're about to hand a rifle to these people, and they are going to poke stuff. <laughs> and we need them to be able to poke from as far away as possible and not get crap in the muzzle. <laughs> so we're going to give them just the, the just a poker for poking. They're you know, prod prisoners every now and then. Po like, pokey bayonets, I really think spike bayonets need to come back because people underestimate... Wow the human nature of wanting to poke a thing from far away. <laughs> Same for the SKS. You prefer the spike? Yeah, yeah, just poke it. Oh, I also yeah. prefer the I prefer the spike on the SKS because if you shoot the Russian ones with my big mitts, I always end up with that bayonet like in my palm making it feel weird. I don't I, with the bayonet folded, I hate shooting the Russian SKS. It just feels awful to me for some reason. So you, you just like your pokey things whether they're plastic or yeah. bayonet. Poking is, poking is excellent. Uh, speaking of pokey, uh, there's a little controversy here. I did some research. There's no patent for your pokey. <laughs> it's, it's lies. I'm sorry. So Tom's going to patent. Uh, and... I, I used the pokey in one of my videos, and I said, uh, mine is not patented. And someone wrote, you're using Athias's pokey or whatever. I was like, oh, shit. There's no patent. I searched. I hate how popular that stuff is. <laughs> It works too well on people. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, to, uh, oh. Hold on, hold on. To clarify, yeah. Before anybody runs away, because I always have to clarify, and I'm real, I'm already hearing the arguments. I prefer a combination knife and bayonet that you can use as a knife. But the question was the number four with the blade bayonet that you can't yeah. really use as a knife. Yeah, no hands on no right. So the order of operations is knife and bayonet, then pokey all right on a stock do you prefer finger grooves or no finger grooves uh i honestly don't care whoa because i'm just gonna hold it how i'm gonna hold it that's I'm, yeah. I'm, i i will I, my meaty mitts will wrap around whatever i gotta hold on to like i've never found a problem either way yeah i feel like i don't really notice them on stocks I mean, I noticed them in the sense I'm like, oh, these are here. I guess I'll hold it this way. If the finger grooves are in a good spot, I like them. And if they're in a bad spot, I hate them. <laughs> I feel like I notice them and I, I, I enjoy them. K31. Every time mm. I shoot a Monlicker 1895 straight pull, I'm like, this gun is so narrow. Just every time I pick it up, it's unexpectedly narrow, no matter how many times I pick it up. That's something you said in your video when mine was on on the way, I went and picked it up from the FFL, and I pulled it out, and I was like, he, 
he fucking wasn't lying. It, yeah. it's, it looks so much bigger than how it feels. Right? It's, yeah, it's so won- thin up top. It's wonderfully light. Yeah. It's beautiful in 8x50. It's awful in 8x56. <laughs> yeah, my, I have a long rifle in 56, and it's still not pleasant. <laughs> Just download it. Who cares? All right. For another stock preference, do you prefer darker kind of walnut-type stocks or lighter beach stocks? Uh... Suze has that. Did you guys see the Swedish uh, eighteen or Swedish Mauser episode? Yes. Did you yep. see that beach stock that Suze owns? Because that's her gun. Yeah, that's very beach. It's the most yellow firearm <laughs> I've ever seen, and I, I loathe that. I I don't own a, a Mauser ninety four. You know. Whoa. But I want one. But then I always see them, and you know what they aren't? They aren't that yellow. <laughs> and I'm so. <laughs> I, I want a I want a beach ninety four carbine that is the same yellow to go with that gun because I know no matter how cool the ninety four looks, it's gonna look like crap compared to that thing. That thing is gorgeously yellow. Wow, so some people like they hate light colored and beach colored stocks. I like, actually with a passion. I, I don't hate them. I will say the most attractive looking stocks to me are the um you know like a Norwegian crag, that red color they use. Oh, okay. They have a very rich red color to coloration to them. Actually, it's the color that most people will read when guys who don't know better get a hold of U.S. firearms and try to refinish them. They use a sort of cherry walnut color, <laughs> yeah. and they the it comes out really red. And uh, the Norwegians actually just look that way, and it's correct. So I kind of tend to like that color. Nice. I'm usually a sucker for a walnut, of any yeah. kind. Dark, no, walnut, dark walnut. Too brown. <laughs> Get a little well, color. I'm a Mauser guy who likes walnut, so I'm a little boring, I guess. Yeah, you got it easy. <laughs> Stripper clip fed or an end block fed? I genuinely like end block better. Oh, shit. It's just so much faster. The problem is it's just not as well sealed, but I'm not, I'm not in a trench. Well, the first time I did a Mosin stripper clip, that, then I started hating. <laughs> yeah, that'll turn you off real quick. <laughs> yeah. Any 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 rimmed round is way better in a in an end block clip than a stripper clip. Oh yeah, yeah. Monica clips are pretty smooth as long as it, the clips aren't bent. It works well. No, end block uh, clips to me are way faster than stripper clips every time. They're just they're more involved, and then they create weaknesses in the rifle. But the actual process is better. And by the way, everybody loves loading Garands. It's true. Yep. Like imagine stripper clip feeding a Garand. Like, this is my argument, because people go, what are you, boo, boo, boo? I go, okay, stripper clip feet a Garand. And they go, oh. oh. Yeah, that'd be terrible. Right, so when the mechanism is designed to work with the end block appropriately, then you love end block clips way more than you love stripper clips. You just don't think about it that way. Yeah, that's a good point. Never thought about the Garand with a stripper clip. Ooh. Yeah. Well, it's annoying to load the end field with two of them when you're filling it up. Yeah, imagine if you could just pull two of those little things out and just dunk, dunk. Not that, that it would work that way, but it'd be right. nice. Actually, I guess it could work, because have a Garen with a 10-round, or well, a 16-round magazine. You fire a bunch, and somewhere in there it kicks out the first block clip, and then... <laughs> wow, that'd be awesome. Yeah, right? <laughs> Welcome to my world. we got to get Bruno to animate that. All right, I think we probably know the answer to this this one. <laughs> Rimmed or rimless cartridges? Yeah, rimless. I will say rimmed has its place, which is uh, lazy engineering. 
it is better for certain tasks. Like you, a rolling block with a rimmed cartridge is a lot smarter than a rolling block with a rimless cartridge, because you have you have no place for gas mitigation, or failure points or anything like that. I mean, look at the evolution of the Mauser, where they start rimless because that's the smart way to go. But then they're going, oh god, we got to put in all these other things. And so, like the Audi Saka is a brilliant gun for how it does gas mitigation. And then people go, yeah, what about the Lee Enfield? And you're like, well, it doesn't have to make any of those decisions because the rim is the gas check. So the end. It's a lot rimmed is a lot simpler on the gun until you get into auto loading. Yeah. And and was the rolling block action ever converted to any sort of repeater or auto loader or something at, at any point? Or is that action just too complicated? No. Never well, heard of it. It's just how would you how that'd be some crazy steampunk shit right there the only thing i can think of that would remotely be similar to a rolling block in terms of feeding straight into the rear of the chamber like that is uh you guys know the steven's miserable loader you're not but i like the sound of it it's the it's called it's called it's actually called a visible loader but everybody called it the miserable loader because once the springs go out of time it, it doesn't feed for crap it's a 22 pump action go look it up it's called a steven's visible loader and it has this external like carrier thing that then feeds into a rear chamber a lot like a rolling block, but it, it doesn't have the locking system at all like a rolling block. Huh. Well, that is a weird one. I have to watch a video on that later. Yeah, that, it is like a rolling block, but it's a pump. All right, for rear sights, are you a peep sight guy or a tangent? And I think we kind of answered this one. No, I actually prefer an oh. aperture sight. Ooh. I just that the Arisaka puts the aperture sight halfway down the rifle, <laughs> which is not ideal. The Madsen right. 47 does that as well, only worse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those are funny. No, a, a receiver-mounted rear aperture sight all the way at the rear is good. Like a 1917 sight is better than a 1903 sight. Oh, yeah. Those are amazing. Oh, yeah. In a similar vein, and this one can kind of go both ways, for front sights, do you prefer front sight protector ears or no ears, just a blade? I don't treat my rifles harshly enough to care. But I would probably prefer to have the protection if I could. Have you ever aimed and put the sight ear in line like they used to talk about? Um, oh, God, there was one rifle where I really wanted to do that on, and I can't remember which one it was. There was one very specific rifle where I went, God, I keep looking at that. But generally, no. Um, generally, they keep them different enough that you wouldn't pick up on it. The one problem with sight protecting ears is that they take up some of your vision. I've never understood why nobody's done half ears that don't go up as tall as the top of the site, but do cover the sort of driftable base of the site to keep you from whacking it. Yeah, I guess they're just trying to prevent the thin blade from being bent, but a lot of the blades aren't that thin, like on Mausers and stuff. The least offensive front sight protectors to me are like the Car 98 sort of steel wrap-over one, you know? Yeah, you won't mistake that. You, can't, you can see through it for the most part, and it still protects and it shades. I actually do like the, the 9130 sites. Those are pretty easy to read. Mm -hmm. All right, here's done with the, the, the speed round. So here's a couple, if you were a soldier. So for if you were a soldier in World War I trench warfare and you were issued a M1903, but you had the opportunity to take, <clears throat> now these are from the future, you had an opportunity to jump into the future, grab a Carcano M38, a Mosin 9130 or a Lee Enfield number 4 Mark 1, 
would you grab any of those over your issue 1903? Uh, the number four is pretty rigid, but it'd probably be between the 1903 and number four. I might go with the number four of the 1903. That's a hard call, but yeah, I think I would. The number four has significant improvements over the other Lee Enfields. And was it also quicker and cheaper to make? Was that also the deal with that? Um, well, like, it was quicker for the British because they knew how to make them already. I thought it was during wartime they were trying to speed yes. it up. Speed well, it they up also trying to spin up other plants, and it was notoriously difficult to teach people how to build number threes properly. <laughs> I mean, number threes have dampeners in them, for God's sake. Yeah, you got to tune them in springs and stuff. Wait, number, sorry, number one Mark threes. I keep doing that now. You know, I had that all sorted out of my head when we were when I was doing World War II, and then I go back to World War One, and it's just Mark Three, Mark Three, Mark Three, and then guess <laughs> what? Now I've completely got it backwards again. You got the Spelling and the number four, easy. It's the number well, one Mark Three number. What's more confusing, the Dutch Monlickers or the Enfield Stars and Marks? The Enfield naming convention is awful, <laughs> especially because they changed it. You know, just randomly. And sometimes they go backwards where they remove a star, mm-hmm. which is fun. Oh, jeez. They got the, the halves and the one slash two. And the I mean, the three. Rosses are impressive in that regard, like 30 gosh darn stars. All right, so let's say you're a ger- you're in World War II now j- fighting on the Japanese islands, and you're a... Uh, I don't know why I'm having you a German soldier, because I want okay, to be I'm a German soldier on the Japanese islands. So you're a German soldier who is fighting... On the side of the Japanese, though, hanging out with him. Okay. And he has his K98 there. Okay. Would you switch it for any of these straight pulls? A Swiss K31, a Monlicker 9534, or a Ross Mark III? What in the world is going on in this environment? In this terrible, <laughs> terrible timeline. Well, no, I wouldn't change it for any of those. Because, I mean, the K31 is pretty decent, but I don't know it well enough. To trust it. Not battle tested enough. Also, let's be honest, I can just wait, why am I using K ninety eight? Why didn't you pick something that could be possible like a VZ twenty four? Well, it was I don't know. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Good point. That's a yeah. good point. You would take the VZ twenty four? Yeah, oh yeah. VZ twenty four is a good rifle. <laughs> All right. You never know. These these Germans in Japan, they're weird. I don't understand why we went to Japan. Like this is this is a preference game, but why did we? It was to get the uh, the 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 environmental environment of the islands on the guns. The turn. Well, see, the VZ twenty four might make it worse actually because it's not a turn down handle. So maybe I would go with the K thirty one over the VZ twenty four, but the Carnegie K over the the thirty one because it would put my hand where it needs to be. I don't know. Like, Like how well would the k31b in a harsh environment it's probably fine but yeah. then again who knows I mean, they dealt with snow and mud and stuff and the, the interesting thing is i think there's oh god now that now you got me thinking about it the k31 probably has so if you think about it in terms of surface area interaction the k31 might have less surface area interaction than the mauser hmm Maybe I'm trying to think of the cocking piece on the Mauser and then the cocking shroud and how much friction there is in there and how many things can get sort of packed with sand versus the K31 where the rotary mechanism itself is a bearing surface. So that's you really don't want to get sand in there, but also how detrimental is that? 
I don't know. My gut says Mauser still, but I'm kind of curious now. Mm, sounds like we need to do a K31 mud test. Yeah, call Carl. Yeah, call Carl. Well, they're also pristine, you know. Most of oh, them. Are you gonna call Carl? Are you calling him? <laughs> he likes it's... to put mud on things. Call him. Uh, Alexa, call Carl. Okay. <laughs> Boom. Ten million views like that. All right, a couple of the best to worsts. How about that? Okay. So for trench warfare, the 1903, the M95 Monlicker, or the Gewehr 98? No way, which, it's the which, M95. Uh, yeah, no way. It can't be. It has to be the 1903 though, because it's the only short rifle. Yep, but that's the way I'd lean. Yeah, yeah you got to carbines win. Even I mean, a Car 88 is going to be worth more than a Gewehr 98 in that <laughs> tight environment. You know. Yeah, I'd take a pistol over any of these, but that's what I'm saying. What about the G43, the M1 Garand, or the SVT40 if they were all made to the same quality standards, let's say? How would you rank them best to worst, not value or collectability? SVT40, number one. Great job. Oh, shit. Ooh, okay. Over then, the M1. That, that, that oh, easily... I, hate the M- I hate the M1 Garand so much. <laughs> I sincerely hate it because the M1 Garand is a... It's halfway between a bolt action that's been converted with a gas system and then an actually designed automatic rifle. It's not really an automatic rifle. Like the way the bolt works is taken directly off of experiments to get bolt action rifles into being gas operated. And it just, it, it, ugh, I hate that mechanism so much. <laughs> it works. Don't get me wrong, it works, but I just hate it. So wait till the M1 episode, guys. I also think it's vulnerable. Wait, because. <laughs> Did Carl stick mud in a Garand yet? I want to see him do that. Uh, I think so. What did it do? Did, was it bad? It's probably bad, right? It gets in the, the hole behind the, the bolt and blocks the hammer. That sounds like it, yep. Oops. I mean, oh, it's, it's a hammer fire. I don't uh, There's just so many things about the Garand where I get it. I'm, I'm going to get yelled at when we go to do that episode. But there's just so many yeah. things about the Garand <laughs> that are not holistic. And they're it's cleaned well, up nicely. I need to see if I can borrow it. Did anybody... If anybody's listening and you made one of those uh, gas trap Garand kits in good shape, let me know. I want to borrow one of those. Because those were available for a while, like 15 years ago. You want to convert it back to a gas trap? Yeah, people were taking really early Garands and they somebody, I can't remember who, Ratworks made a kit to do, uh, they did the two types of gas trap system for them. And then you had to do a couple other things, but you could convert Garrett, like, so there's other parts down in the uh, in the recoils in the return springs. I can't remember now. Crap, I'm going off my memory and it's terrible. But the point being is, you could make yourself a reproduction gas trap Garand out of a Garand. And so I would really love to borrow one of those in order to do our Garand episode. That would be nice. Wow, it, does, it doesn't involve doing anything bad to the gun, right? Yeah. No, no. Well, I mean, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't remember. No, wait. Yes, it does. Uh-oh. You have to re. You have to re, if you want to do it right. You have to rebarrel them because the barrel was two inches shorter. Oh, but there's a million freaking Garands out there. So like, making a gas trap repro right. out of an original Garand's not the worst thing I've ever heard of. Yeah, I mean, if everybody did it, it would be kind of sh- crappy. But you know, if less than five percent of them were converted, who cares? There's so many of them. Yeah, the SVT the SVT forty is the smartest of those three, though. Yeah, G forty three is not great. The, the G43 is derivative, mm. and I guess the problem is I'm trying to imagine if it was made better, 
how that would have worked out better, but I'd probably bring that the lowest, but I can't be sure without really looking at the mechanism again. It's been a long time. You have to understand, like, a lot of my data for World War II is drawn from my memory of 15 years ago, which is way out of date. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in seeing when you get to the, all these things again, what, you know, what you learned that you you didn't know from before or you forgot. And... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like the Garand. I don't want anybody to think I hate it, but I hate it. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get yelled at for that one, but that's what you do. Yeah, that's me. Has is there anything cooler than the Alof's reloading magazine? Yeah, have you have you seen Burgess folding guns? Ooh, oh yeah, those are pretty sick. We have a oh, video yeah. using one, and nobody's noticed it. Oh, I haven't seen that. I've seen Ian's video, but yeah, not theirs. It's literally we 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 fold it, we unfold and fire ours. What? Yeah, I need to watch this. Yeah, it's got. Uh, 147,000 views, which is fairly low for being three years old. The problem we're having, actually, that gun's available to me. The problem I'm having is all of the Burgesses I've gotten a hold of, and I think it may be a fault of the gun, I just haven't been able to find any material on it. They don't eject the last round hardly at all, because it kind of relies on the next round in the magazine to eject the empty case in the correct direction. And so you fire the mag, and then it jams up on the last round, which means reloads are slow. Hmm. So it's kind of a funky design in that regard. Wow. That's, That's cool. interesting. That's a crazy... Yeah, I'm watching it now. So the Burgess folding shotgun. Wow. For the sake of the world, I have tried getting every gun manufacturer to make the Burgess. <laughs> because we have, we have semi-automatic mechanisms that, that are all back action. We know how to make wrist pumps. We know all this stuff. So every time I talk to one of these engineer guys, I openly just go, hey, use use the Burgess takedown system, make a gun. Especially because if you were using a detachable box magazine, you don't even have to do all the crazy interrupter stuff for the for the magazine tube that this gun does. Like any any gun that the action is all in the back of the system is uh, viable for a Burgess folding system. That'd be sick. I'd love reproduction. I, yeah, I think that would sell. That's That's pretty cool. Like... The way people didn't think the lever action, the modern lever actions were going to sell, and now they're selling like mad. Dude, I takedowns need to come back. Takedowns are cool. Everybody loves them. Every time I show off a takedown in person, everybody flips out. Why aren't we doing more takedowns? Hey, Ruger did their 1022 takedown. That was a big hit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe a hit of Ruger. I mean, there is one Burgess in the market right now. Which is that nobody understands it, but it's the Keltec Sub 2000. The Keltec Sub 2000 is a brilliant <laughs> firearm. Those are every, cool. Everybody hates on it, but it's stop, ignore the plastic, ignore the screws, ignore the Keltec. It's tough. It is the only nine millimeter carbine in the market that makes any sense because all the rest are so over engineered. It's stupid. Well, Smith and Wesson has their folding one now. Yeah, it's stupid. It's a milled out, giant, heavy, whatever. Like, stop, stop and think. The Keltec. The red, like the the receiver, the part that's serialized is a steel tube, because that's what a nine millimeter carbine should be. It should just be a steel tube. Why the hell are you making a nine millimeter carbine out of anything other than a steel tube? The first nine millimeter carbine of any importance was the MP18. It was a steel tube. Everybody remembers the Sten. It was a steel tube. The Sterling steel tube. They're all steel tubes. And then we decided that we need to take like ARs and AKs and make conversion kits and add on all this gobbledygook. It's a nine millimeter. 
it's fine if it's blowback. Make it a steel tube. Name another 9mm right now that's a steel tube. Oh, no, it's just the Keltec. It feeds from Glock mags that are available everywhere or from Smith & Wesson mags that are available everywhere or whatever because it has the multi-mag. It'll take anything. Who cares? And then it folds in half like a Burgess. And it uses the trigger guard to do that. That's sublime. It is It is as strong as it needs to be to do what it does. The problems are the, ch the cheap plastic trigger guard, the cheap plastic sights. Nobody likes that. So you have to go buy aftermarket ones, which is what I did to make mine. Yeah, but that's all right. And you and can't then, put an optic on it when folded. No, you can. It's called it's the Red Lion Indexing Forehand, which everybody has ignored, and they they sell out whenever they get more in. But most people forgot they exist. Red Lion did a four point indexing uh, forehand, so you just flip the optic over, fold the gun in half, and then when you unfold it, you flip it back over. It's really simple. Oh, okay. And even Caltech didn't do it. They did this stupid like thirty five degree rotation when they did their integrally suppressed one. No, 180 degrees rotation. That way, on the on the on the sort of width plane, the gun is as narrow as ever. It's like an FN 1900 or a 1911. They're narrow guns. That was makes them easy to put away. So you should have 180 degrees rotation so that you can put the gun flat in a backpack or something. But the Caltech's brilliant. The problem is the execution. It's plastic, and nobody can forgive it for that. But if it was made out of like aluminum housings with a steel tube. And they had they included the four point indexing forend as a factory option. Everybody would herald it as the best gun, but nobody sees it that way because it's hiding under plastic. I think you need to get into gun design here and do it. He's got a point. He's got it right. You got a good point. Have you guys seen my sub two thousand video? It's great. If you look at our alt channel, determined idiots, I have a video of me shooting it uh, two hundred yards with zero effort. I mean, we're just we're we're hammering it two hundred with a sixty dollar pistol scope that I slapped on it. Yeah, people sleep on it. Yeah, it's a steel tube. It's a steel tube that after re what was it this year they had a rebate you could get one for like three fifty or three eighty and then it had a hundred dollar rebate on it so it's like you're under three hundred dollars to get one. Yeah, they're stupid cheap for what they yeah. are. They're great. It's a service to the industry. Like nobody, but everybody makes fun of it. It's like they forgot how to have fun. <laughs> oh, where were we? All right. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no sorry, I just sold you guys on the sub 2000 and now you're distracted. You didn't know. Now I'm looking them up. I'm like, hmm. I'm thinking, yeah, if they only did that, I wonder. Yeah. I need to look for one. Get, All right. Get, get that. Get the M Carbo rear sight. Get the M Lion or the M Lion. Get the Red Lion forend and the Red Lion front sight. And that those things are enough to make that gun great. And then you can add more stuff if you want, but those things make it great. Noted. All right, so so back to World War One real quick. I think we have a, <laughs> two more. Which had more of an impact? Anti tank guns like the Tigaver or sniper rifles? Mm, anti tank guns, weirdly. In the long term, the sniper rifle proved to be more important, but almost everyone abandoned their well, everyone abandoned their sniper programs after World War One. Uh, I'd have to do some more research, but the country that kind of kept it up the longest was Norway. Uh, but they obviously didn't need it or use it that much by World War Two. And then um, the tank rifle, though, that got developed all the way into World War Two, and then the tanks finally outdeveloped the tank rifle. So. Today, we still use, you know, glass and optics and a lot of the lessons 
from World War One. We think they carried over, but they really didn't. They were abandoned and rediscovered in World War Two. So there was a hard break. So it's kind of interesting. The sniper rifle is more influential today, but it has a hard gap in it in which we totally abandoned everything we learned. And then the anti-tank rifle, we did keep everything we learned, but it just became useless. I asked the um, AI the same question, and they said, based on their overall impact on the battlefield, uh, I'd assign sniper rifles a 55% effectiveness rating compared to anti-tank guns at 45 percent <laughs> what <laughs> not exactly sure what it was thinking what that means but it's uh, pretty funny thank you think your your job's safe for a little while now yeah they have exact numbers of effectiveness but yeah that was that was my thinking too is like yeah anti-tank rifles led to development in tanks where sniper rifles yeah they you always hear like the individual soldiers accounts of like oh sniper shooting the guy lighting the cigarette and stuff like that but mm-hmm. there's a lot more fear there too doesn't really change anything. We didn't ask you before, but did you uh, have a preference between a straight bolt and a turn down bolt? No, you did ask me that. No, we asked about the straight bolt and a... Uh... A straight pull versus a yeah. turn bolt. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, for personal shooting, turn down is better. I understand why infantry units were given straight bolts. Yeah, more more leverage in harsher conditions. You're also able to beat it against things without damaging the stock, whereas with a turn down, you're probably going to tear up the stock while beating it against things. And I heard you on Millsurf World, and Danny liked the turn down bolt for his personal shooting, but you like the leverage more, though, like of a... If I'm trying to shoot quickly, I'll take a turn down. But to be honest with you, most of the time, I'm not even shooting that quickly, so it's not a big deal to just yeah. use whatever's there. Yeah. I do I do understand the speed advantage of a turndown that is correct. I think certain turndowns are worse. So the car 88 where it's a turndown, but it's like halfway up the receiver and it doesn't put you anywhere near the trigger and it's kind of a pain to get under. That one's just awful. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of shooting, that was going to be our next section for the first part of this. Do you reload or is that something you leave to others? Um, I... I mean, I can reload, but for the most part, that is done in-house by Suze. And before that, David helped out for a while, but before that was Jay, our reloader. So we've gone through a number of reloaders, uh, given people's availability, but currently Susie is our big reloader. Okay, so... I just bribe her, because we can keep it all in-house. Nothing for your personal stuff? Um, I mean, I do have... I have data, but to be honest with you, given my schedule, since we have somebody that can reload, I tend to be like, can you make me these, please? That's nice. Yeah, I have you, I I have reloaded like this. This I hate to make it sound like I don't because I can I could go out there and crank out whatever I need to crank out. It's just that for serial manufacturer of cartridges, it's it's far easier to find somebody else to put some time down because once it's established what we're going for, it's a lot easier to let somebody else sort of chase that around. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a whole whole thing in and of itself. Right. I mean, I do a lot of the research up front for what we're looking for for muzzle velocity and bullet weight and. We certainly had a lot of research go into that stupid Comblane episode, but um, generally, I set this. I set the stats for what we want. I pick what powder we're probably going to be using, depending, um, and then from there, Sue sorts out how we're going to get the case dimensions we want. If it requires a lathe operation, I usually get involved because I'll have to set up the lathe the way uh, she wants it because she's not that intimate with it. 
Um, but she'll run it. So once I have it set up the way she wants it, she'll just run the lathe for however many cartridges. But the first one's on me. Okay. Also about shooting here, did any gun actually surprise you that it was more complicated maybe than you thought? Wait, to run or mechanically? Yeah, mechanically. Any like a machine gun or a sub, something that you were just like, what the, this is so complicated. Um, the Anything Pedersen is just pure insanity. <laughs> I mean, not, and I know people are thinking the Pedersen device, but that's actually probably the simplest of his horrific guns. Um, the Remington 1910 shotgun is just unbelievable inside. Although, so is the 97, because the 97 was a simple John Browning design that Winchester then had to add parts to to make it more usable. And so it's pretty wild inside of both of those shotguns. Pump-action shotguns in general are far more complicated than people realize. Um, overall, revolvers are much more complicated. I think realizing that they had to move towards... It's very interesting. Revolvers start to eliminate drag, and when they go to eliminate drag, they realize that they have counter-rotation from the weight of the cartridges being spent. And so they have to come up with the, what we're calling sprags, which are ways to prevent rotation in one direction. So that's a whole other category of components that no one has been talking about for 100 years and yet are kind of critical to how revolvers work. I think those are the big ones that stand out. I can't think of anything else that's super wild. I mean, I probably could sit here and name all... Honestly, working with Bruno, our animator, I constantly go, wait a second, wait a second, why is that doing that? And he goes, no, no, look, it does this. And you go, oh, oh. Yeah, it makes sense once you kind of break them all out like that. The animation segments for every episode are basically where you can see us finding out what cool stuff does. And as for, for shooting, is there any that there were like more unpleasant than you thought to shoot or not so fun after being hyped up? The Monlicker 1895s have the worst butt plate. <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, it's just the butt plate. I mean, just I don't know what they did to make that shape so perfectly bad. Because right. otherwise, it's a fine enough gun. It's it's everybody complains about the bolt and how blah, blah, blah. the bolt's fine. It's a little stiff, but it's supposed to be like that. It's actually mechanically designed to have initial resistance, so that you have to yank on it. But the the butt plate is just god awful. The Tigavair wasn't nearly as bad as people said it was going to be. Oh really? Oh yeah, Tigavair is not that bad. Interesting. I mean, it's it's loud and it's big and it it pushes you around a lot, but it's got spikes in its bipod and everything. I mean, Ian got knocked over because they shot it standing from a rifle rest like weirdos. <laughs> but we put ours on sandbags and stuck the cleats into the sandbag like you're supposed to, and it was fine. <laughs> I don't know why he did it that way. Have you had any accidents or like squib loads or out of battery? Crazy no, things? knock on wood, other than that veterly, we haven't had too much trouble, <laughs> but we are very careful is the other thing. Yeah, you sound it. Um, no, I can't think of anything that's really failed. I mean, I, I accidentally emptied a, I famously emptied a Steyrhan magazine into my face. That was funny. Oh, I love that one. <laughs> yeah, but that was about it for, for wackiness. I, I show all my friends that whatever they're looking at my Steyrhan. <laughs> Generally, the normal mechanical problem we run into is just bad ejection. Like we get out to the range and all of a sudden it just the, the ejector spring finally gives up or the extractor springiness kind of gets lost. So you see it over and over again. We get out there and we go, oh, God, I'm amazed tipping the rifle to get stuff out. Any calibers that you found are particularly sweetheart calibers for a rifle or pistol? Yeah, 7 millimeter Rouser. We went over this. <laughs> 6.5 uh, Norwegian is very pleasant. What about pistol-wise? I mean, all the, all, the, all the 9 mils are roughly equivalent, and they're all fairly pleasant, you know? So... 
on your range day, are you one of those guys that like to stick with one one or two calibers, or you don't mind bringing? I, you do for the show a lot, but when you, if you have time to go for fun, yeah, I almost never do. <laughs> I um honestly, I don't really go out to the outdoor range for fun because I end up having to do so much test shooting and everything else, and it's just whatever we're working on. Um, if I want to shoot for fun, then uh, so where we film is this now a six hundred yard range that's about an hour and some change away from me. So that's a hike, and I've got to make sure I have everything I need to get out there. So I very rarely go out there. If I do, I'm usually palunking around with a foul because I just happen to be playing with a foul a lot lately. And um, but realistically, where I tend to burn ammo, like actually consume ammunition, is thirty or so minutes from me is a sporting clay range, and that is my favorite jam. Way uh-huh. more relaxing than any other form of shooting. Yeah, I need to try that more. Yeah. You do so, competitions in that now? I just grab some buddies. I'll usually see who wants to go. And, uh, you know, we, you go down there and it's a, uh, the place we have is a cheap golf cart rental with, you know, shotgun racks on the golf cart. And you just, I think it's about a mile course and it's like golf. There's different stages and you shoot it like you stay, you know, uh, Charlie Brown, the mm. cartoon. Uh, you yeah, know, the cartoon. Yeah. 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 And, you know, Lucy, she has the therapist thing where it's like yeah. a little window on a box mm-hmm. yeah you stand in one of those you just stand in a window <laughs> and uh, from that position you have to shoot you know, pairs of clays that are launched from all sorts of different angles and sizes and sometimes rabbits and stuff and um, you just try to make the best of it and you kind of if you're being fair to your friends you kind of rotate who goes first to whoever's surprised and uh, I think that one's got 13 holes I don't remember now yeah, but, that, sounds uh, awesome. yeah, that sounds fun yeah, you just, so you'd get out of the cart and you walk over and you set your right shotguns down and you kind of look and try to figure out what the machines are going to do to you and you read the little card that tells you whether it's a true pair or a report pair and you discuss it for a second and then you all take your turns taking your shots, laugh at each other and then you get back in your golf cart and you drive to the next one and you just <laughs> do that over and over again. Or if the weather's really nice, I'll walk it because it's only like a mile and some change. But generally here it's very humid and hot, so I tend to opt for the golf cart. Wow, that sounds fun. Look yeah, into that. Easily the most relaxing way to shoot. It's unfortunately a little pricey, so I can't do it all the time, but it's uh, still the most relaxing. And for us, we tend to, you know, we have a bunch of weirdos here, so we take every stupid shotgun we can lay hands on. So I've, you know, I've done it with lever action shotguns. I've done it with uh, like Mossberg's first pump action, which is a really wild gun. I actually love shooting that one. Old Marlins, old Winchesters, Auto Fives. Um, a friend of mine did about half the course with a Dryza needle shotgun that was converted to centerfire. <laughs> oh man! So, so, did you do your shotgun series? No, we've never. We we started to do that series, and we invested fairly heavily in getting it started because everything was very cheap. So we just grabbed it all up, and then time like it kept. We kept having this expectation of keeping the growth rate we had. And then it all flatlined and we couldn't get any more financial help to bring in someone to help film with it or to even just handle all the ammo expense for it. And so that series is waiting for us to find the time uh, to do it. I hope we have a back-end plan for redressing the way we do the show. And it's, oh. it's, it's a very cosmetic change. It won't change anything about how the show is. All the elements of the show will be the same. However, I believe that I can better align 
the message and the delivery and i think that will help us along with moving into world war ii and then that should bring in enough funding to help us do the shotgun series like we want to do in a a moves of studio type thing or just a i mean yeah, yeah we're gonna cha- we're gonna change the studio we're gonna change some of the dressings we're just gonna like i don't know we're gonna make it look a little nicer and we're gonna sort of more align ourselves with the message oh wow okay the short answer is we look YouTube. Like, I mean, we look nice for YouTube, but we still look YouTube, and we're trying to look a little less YouTube. Still going to keep the hat, though, right? That probably is going to get the axe, weirdly. Oh, shit. Oh, no. The beard? No, I'm keeping the beard. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't, I literally don't have a face. I need the beard. Just the void. Well, Millsart Moses needs a beard. <laughs> He's still trying. <laughs> It'll stick one day. It's because I have too unique of a name. Othias is the nickname. Like, there's other people named Ian, so they have to specify, but with Othias, nobody's confused. That's pretty true, yeah. <laughs> All right, we have one more here. What are you looking forward to shooting most when it comes to the World War II stuff? We might have answered that a bit. All of it. I'm going to be honest. So My perspective has always been, because it's, it's always show production, the best part about World War II is the high availability of ammunition. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that makes it a lot easier. Like the, the, the difficult rounds are going to be 7mm, 7.65 Argentine. Like Those are going to be like the hard ones. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling that's to think right. of... I guess like 7.7 six, seven, seven Japanese. No, that's easy as crap. You just make that out of 3. About 6 with like a 3.8 bullet, I think. I can't remember now. It's very easy to make 7.7. Seven, seven. Oh, to make, yeah. Yeah, super easy to make. That's a good buy. I think the only difficult one is... I don't know how hard it is to make curves. So maybe curves, but I also know a guy that is sitting on a curves, so I think I'll be fine there. Um, and 735 Carcano is probably the most difficult one now that I think about it. Like, trying to do that episode is going to be a little difficult, but no more so than a bunch of other stuff we've done on the regular. Well, that was another thing I was going to ask. Do you all shoot any original ammo, or is it all made to original spec? No, it's all just made to spec. Original can be dangerous because it decays. Okay. But you never know. See, this is the problem with like a collectible cartridge box or something. You never know if somebody took it and put it in their truck and left it there for 20 years. And the whole time, the powder, which the the shape of the granules of powder affects the burn rate, they could be being broken down into even finer sand. And so you just don't know. Wouldn't that be an issue for military? Because they transport it all over the place and keep it for days. Yeah, but they generally they generally sits in a depot until they send it somewhere. They don't often haul it back and forth a bajillion million times. And if they do, that's on them, not on me. Yeah, true. All right. I think that wraps up the shooting portion. And what else do we have, Tom? We have... The last question I see here is, are you planning... To write any kind of book that we talked about before, but like, are there any books or book series that you really would want to put out that you think you would? I had I have an idea for a coffee table book that I just again time um, that is still very much possible, and mm-hmm. frankly, I kind of keep it in my back pocket because I'm going well. If I go broke for some reason, I could whip this book out, and then that would save me a little bit. Um, <laughs> It's a highly visual book. I can't really say much about it. But then the other one is uh, obviously the revolver history. No one has actually done a uh, universal martial revolver book. However, that is nowhere near getting done because 
those 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 collections are very scattered. You know, you you have guys that maybe are Smith and Wesson collectors and maybe are cult collectors and things like that, but then you can all sorts of weird sub variations of whatever for you know South American countries that are adopting Belgian designs and British designs and just trying to get all those photos would require about ten thousand dollars in airplane trips, you know. And you're just going, uh, yeah. I don't know when I would have the time or the money to get all that done versus just making another episode where I actually get paid. Now, if YouTube was gone tomorrow, would the book plans get kicked into gear then? Yeah, pretty much. That'd be, the only, <laughs> that'd be the survival mechanism. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> it it kind of have to be a Hail Mary. You, you think about it. I would have to. I guess if YouTube's gone, how would I promote it, though? Shit. You have yeah. to be preemptive here. Get some... Uh instagram following going oh you can't even do that instagram's got <laughs> locked out real good now uh, i don't even know where to go yeah we had some growth on twitter and then that flatline too it's always like we reach a certain point and then all of a sudden we just have no reach uh, i think the word g-u-n is in a lot of algorithms and it definitely is it, so and that's unfortunate yep it is utterly wild i've we we had I told you we had Project Lightning gave us some trouble with our metrics for a while afterwards, but then the really big one that sunk us was the Abadie episode. Absolutely destroyed our income and metrics, which is insane to think about. So we we took a kneecap for Project Lightning hobbled along. Our Abadie revolver episode, for some unforeseen reason, was extremely popular. And I think it got past the censorship somehow. I'm not sure. It got under the wire. And we had tons of comments like, why have I never seen this show? And then people from Portugal just being happy we talked about a Portuguese gun. Wow. And it, it went atomic. It's still one of our higher rated episodes, which is just, it's an abity. Like, who cares? You know, the, um, then YouTube sent us a notice saying, hey, we, there's weird bot activity on your account. And then they just deleted like 10,000 of our subscribers for no reason, which we kept getting people going, when was I unsubscribed? Wow. And then ever since oh, their metrics just tanked. And I, like, it was, it went from, they had leveled out and stopped growing after Project Lightning and even shrinking a little bit. And then after that, it just bottomed out and we could not get views on anything for many, many months because we were clearly sequestered by the back. Like, somebody at YouTube hit the button. It was very bizarre. So weird. Like we broke containment and then they went, we need to put another layer of containment. And then they, that was it. So do you think there's any hope that YouTube gets better? Only if it faces competition. Um, mm. I'm a little. I was a little interested in what Twitter's doing, but the problem is Twitter is sort of talking out both ends at once. They're sucking and blowing at the same time. Um, <laughs> I know Elon's a very polarizing character, and people are going to be like, "Ah, oh, they're going to start frothing one way or the other." Yeah. But just just looking at it as a platform and the way it's positioning itself, Twitter is kind of doing what YouTube's doing, only more so where they have decided that they could try to master more than one silo. So YouTube is trying to take on uh, TikTok with the shorts. And that at least is like two types of video, even though they are slightly different silos. Um, Twitter is trying to take on video, but they've provided no real mechanism for that to work well. They don't really have a discovery system that works well with video. They don't have even viewership tracking in the way that you would want you know they have none of the features of youtube but they've slapped on video as a way to take on everything that gets rejected off of youtube and then that way they know that they're number two now for video hmm. uh the company appears to be positioning itself to 
be PayPal 2.0. And no one seems to have noticed this, but if you pay close attention to what Elon's saying, uh, Twitter looks like it's it's going to take on video simply because it's one of many things it wants to do. I think Twitter wants to take on video and retail and everything. I think it wants to be the like Weibo of the West. And yep. they definitely want to have their own digital currency. Like that, that is a thing that is on his mind. He was, don't forget, he was involved in PayPal. It's absolutely up his alley. Like Twitter wants to be an everything network. If that happens, then that will be actual competition for YouTube. But the problem is, how are they going to try to take that on? Because if they do, if they, if they try to do a jack of all trades, master of none, then they can't really provide a stable environment while taking on youtube which means it could be the death of a lot of channels um we kind of saw this with the death of animation channels on youtube a while back when they changed what they were doing so it's weird but the entire market could position itself in a way that's actually really destructive for us during a competition or a competition could be really valuable for us it just it depends on how it goes so it's a wait and see kind of game that's got to be tough for you guys (laughs) yeah well, it's it's easy in the sense that I just have to keep paddling with what's available to me. The one good thing that happened is, despite the shorts being completely annoying since they broke them off, I can at least participate in the shorts now. So, hooray! Yay! <laughs> Yay! Yeah, like shorts! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're easy, but God, no, just, I, mean, I like I like it. I so like much bad ones. There's so many bad ones out there. Right. I mean, it's a rapid discovery mechanic. I give it that. Well, I've noticed you've been in my shorts, like I'd say, the last two or three weeks more than ever. So I don't know if you've been putting out more. Oh, we're definitely dumping them, and it seems like we're not as bottlenecked there as we were before. However, I kind of am wondering when they're going to pull the trigger on that, too. Like, I wonder when we're going to hit the blacklist that we obviously will be added to, like, every time. I don't know. I'm very very negative about social media, unfortunately. I shouldn't be. I should probably be trying to, you know chip chip chiru but golly it's been really i feel like it has gotten in our way as much as it has helped us if that makes sense yeah i don't think i don't think most people are positive about where it's going it's mostly just i want to be left alone i and this is a problem we've run into in cnr a lot because may and i had this we, we were trying to send an international payment today and uh the last time we tried doing this we were, we're moving some antiques around like we found something we need in france it's antique it wasn't expensive so we got a guy that can get it over to us so then we send a wire transfer. The problem is everything we're doing is completely legal. It's an antique. It is in French law. It's fine to ship in U.S. law. It's fine to receive. We don't need any special for customs, whatever. But we're going through the banking system. And if you write a firearm or firearm name in the banking system, they freeze the whole transaction and start picking fights with each other and you all at the same time. And you just end up in this horrible spiral. This bothers me because I'm doing something legal. I can't use PayPal for anything that I have to be careful anyway, like not to have gun names. So people try to donate me, donate to me in PayPal. And I have to be, I have to be very cautious about letting them do that because somebody could just go, Hey, thanks for the Glock. And then boom, I'm going to get banned off of PayPal. Like what happened to, uh, Oh, what is his name? Um, they were doing the, uh, the middle Eastern weapon stuff and they printed a patch that had a gun on it and they got banned off PayPal because it was in the shape of a gun. <laughs> Oh, I remember that story. I don't yeah, remember yeah, what yeah. it was. Uh, a CELA yeah. report. CELA report. All right. And so there's this garbage. It's perfectly legal. Banned. You know, YouTube, perfectly legal. And as a matter of fact, if you look at how they file firearms categories, they say, you know, you can't show anything fully auto or extended magazines. 
I'm showing you a machine gun from the turn of the century in a historical context. I when they wrote that, I guarantee you they didn't even imagine that that was what they were limiting. But there's no way around it. There's no another one for me to talk to. There's no way for me to get an exemption. There's no way for me to go look. This is college course level information. There's nothing about this that can't be shown in a high school. It's annoying. They're imagining Demolition Ranch when they say that stuff. And by the way, Demolition Ranch ah. should be able to show that all he wants. I don't see why he shouldn't. But even if you're against showing it, does that context apply to me? Are you against me showing it? Because there's nothing about what we're doing that goes, hey, look how fun this is. We, you know, it's it's not, you can't, uh, anyway, sorry, this is my rant. There's no nuance that gives us any room. And so we suffer the penalties of being a gun channel. And we also suffer the penalties of being a history channel. And we also suffer the penalties of being a long form channel. And they all stack up to make it just a miserable nightmare to deal with anything. And so then I end up with money orders disappearing. I end up with German customs seizing my shirts. I end up with YouTube locking me out of being shared. I can't, I'm literally not allowed to put videos on TikTok. I just over and over and over again, I'm doing a perfectly reasonable legal thing and I am constantly harassed for it. That's terrible. TikTok too? Oh yeah, we got banned right off of that. Yeah, yeah not surprising. <laughs> All right, well, it sounds like it's a, a very stressful situation to to not know what the rules are going to be tomorrow. So my hat's off to you for, for doing it so long and not, no. like we said, missing a, a, an episode every other week for seven years. All I, all I want to work is all I want to do is work between 60 and 100 hours a week to make a documentary every two weeks. Right. And so that people might donate quarters to me because they liked it while clapping. <laughs> it's something about that process is that everyone needs to interfere with it. Like, I can't. And don't forget a nice soft shirt. Well, yeah, we're gonna need we're gonna need regulation. We're gonna need uh, terms of service. We're gonna need all this stuff to get in the way of you working really hard and begging for pennies. Oh, this is so frustrating. That's what you get. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's this stupid jerk teaching people about things. Well, you're, you're definitely not making anything from us. So uh, appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, it was great yeah. having you. Always been a, been a big fan for years, so super cool to talk to you. I didn't mean to end it on a grump. I'm sorry. I <laughs> right. know you're frustrated. Yeah, yeah we're just now figuring out all, all the YouTube systems. That's and fun, right? Yep. You're a voice that I've gone to sleep to many a time. I don't know if that sounds weird, but... Uh... Uh, I get that a lot. <laughs> I get that so very often. <laughs> you're a very relaxing, soothing person to listen to when you're uh, falling asleep trying to learn <laughs> rifles. Yeah, I'm trying to, trying. and then we start shooting, and then the old world were declared clay, and then you wake up. <laughs> All right, so thank you so much for coming on. We'll probably uh, split this up into two episodes. This is uh, yeah, I'm gonna say there's a lot. We had a lot of info here, and thanks for for entertaining uh, our uh, questions and all the bullshit we threw at you. No, that's fine. Did you guys get everything you needed? Oh, yes, absolutely, definitely. Thank okay. you so much. So, how many episodes is this now? What number is this? In the, te- in the teens. 14? Oh, there you go. Yeah, we're fa- fairly new overall. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like it's good. Well, you're very well prepared. You seem to have a script and you keep it moving instead of some people that just sort of start talking in circles about whatever they're drinking or something. I don't know. <laughs> Come on, keep you got to keep a direction, boys. If you, As long as you have a direction, they'll go with you down the river. But you got to have a direction. See, that's something I, I learned that from you, too. Next time, we'll just do 30 hours of Sam Colt stories that I read recently because I can't believe all of them. Sounds good to me. 
we'll we'll gather some more questions and then uh, definitely ask you back on. Okay, cool. That was fun. Okay, so what's the ender here? What's the we need a hard ending? Like, what's a good ending? Shit, have you not mastered this? Usually, we just say goodbye and then I play music. Lately, it's been you know Dennis from Empire Arms. Yeah, Dennis Pro. Yes, he um, we had him on and he was in a rock band in the '60s and. Oh, uh, okay. He said we could use some of his music, so we've been using that for. I did. I did listen to that episode. I heard a lot of things. (laughs) A lot of tales. Did you hear his? I I heard. I want to point out. I heard an entire podcast when I listened to that. Just the whole thing. (laughs) All right. See, that Uh, was a good one. Yeah. I also like the Mouser guys. That was great. Yeah, this is a good. That one. I don't know how much the average person would enjoy, but I enjoyed it a lot because I'm going. Oh God, this is this is pain. I feel this. Yep. Well, we're, uh, you see, I'm a Mauser fanboy, so I loved having those guys on. Yeah, yeah they, they were great. Didn't know about the Serbian conversion Mausers, but you know. <laughs> True. Ooh, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't think of it. I didn't think of it. You know why? Because they're never for sale. They're never, I never see them. You're never going to get one. Shit. Just do what I do and wait for Ian to tell you one's for sale in Europe, and then you just have to go deal with that. That's usually where they're for sale, Europe. Yeah, it is. You gotta. <laughs> I I'm so mad. I thought it was gonna go for atomic money, so I I didn't bid on the other Serbians that were there, and then they all went so low that I could have afforded to get the single shot black powder as well. And I kicked myself for not even putting a bid in because I literally couldn't have afforded it if one went high and one went low. And I went, oh, oh my bad. god, being poor sucks because I could have just I could have had an episode right there. <laughs> well, we 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 know a guy in Europe. We need to get some. Good deals here and there. I need a guy in Madrid. Give me a guy in Madrid. Shit. Don't know that. I got a guy in Norway and Denmark. I got guys in France and Germany and stuff. I need Madrid. So how do you sign off your show? I'm trying to think. We laugh it up with May for a second and then we name the executive <laughs> producers and then we get out of there. That's so I'm saying up. like endings are hard. All right. Get May. Tell her to come in and laugh it up, please. And then we'll uh that is not a good idea. <laughs> Uh, all right, we'll descend it. We'll play some music and end it. Thank everyone for thank you everyone for listening. Appreciate Go, it. Yeah, goodbye everybody. Don't die. Don't do that. Don't die. Don't shoot a veteran. Yeah, be be alive. And go go watch CN Arsenal. And I love you. I love you. Goodbye. Give him money. Oh, that's Give the thing I do too. Patreon. <laughs> all right. Perfect. I guess, we need, I guess we need to get a Patreon. Yeah, you should get a Patreon. We have one. We do. Oh, well, then you should put money in it. When I, we made the channel, I said, I'll make everything all at, the, at once. Well, then why aren't you plugging that at the end of the show? Why are we doing this? We have, zero, we have zero patrons. I never plugged it ever. I the, just well, yeah, it. that's why you plug it. No. I didn't even know we had it. Maybe the, after more people and then hear they, us. The patrons can know who is coming up next on the episodes, and they can submit questions that you will pick from. That's a good idea, but maybe now, if you, on any of your things, say, hey, check these guys out, maybe... People will hear us. Well, we're putting uh, we're putting the patron in the, 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 the this is recorded, right? We're doing this now, right? What's the Patreon? Tell them where to go. Oh, Bill Serp HQ is what it is, probably. Okay, Patreon slash <laughs> Mill Serp HQ, probably. Oh, sweet. Let's go there. Yeah, that's it. Go to yeah. there. Patreon that Mill Serp HQ. Yeah, you there, go there, and you could be the first patron. The yeah. very first one. <laughs> the first one. To give a hundred dollars gets to uh do you know Lady in the Tramp with the spaghetti part? Yeah. 
Yeah, they get there. They get to do that with a hot dog with Tom at show shows. Ooh, ooh, or Tulsa or wherever you go. Man, sign me up. All right, I would do that for free, but hey, <laughs> sign me up. All right, that'll do it. I think we got our first one coming soon. Yeah. All right, that's a good idea. We'll promote. Yeah. So do that. Don't die. I have to now look for the emails from page, Patreon. Who knows what Wait, that looks on, like? I'm a professional consultant. Are you ready? You're sign off from now on. <laughs> and then we'll sign off on this. You ready? Yep. Okay, everybody, thank you for joining us. Give me money. Don't die. Boom. I like it. All right. Perfect. Give us money. Don't die. Perfect. <laughs> Okay, everybody, thank you for joining us. Give me money, don't die.